have to pass the bill so that you can uh, find out what is in it. If you like your doctor, you will be able to keep your doctor. What difference at this point does it make? If you're looking to make sense out of what's going on in the world today, then you've come to the right place. Welcome to Southern Sense Talk Radio with your host, Annie, the Radio Chickie Bellis, and featuring Curtis C.S. Bennett and the most interesting guest that you'll find anywhere on Internet radio. And you can join the show and let your voice be heard by dialing 917 889 3675. So sit back, relax, and remember, Southern Sense is common sense. emergency strikes, what's your first impulse? If your answer is run to the grocery store, you're likely to find chaos and plenty of empty shelves. So how do you avoid this? Well, it's simple. You use today to make a plan to prepare for things that may happen. It's a hurricane, earthquake, blizzard, or even social unrest, especially in today's political environment. The practical place to start is by storing up food in your home. And I use my Patriot Supply for my food storage. If you don't have an emergency food supply, it's time to do so. Here's a great item that makes it really simple. A two-week food kit that comes in a rugged tote. And it's only $75 when you go to my special website, preparewithsouthernsense.com, or call 888-441-7290. This food kit includes breakfast, lunch, and dinners that will last up to 25 years on your storage shelves. So order now and prepare yourself, and then rest easy. So it's very simple. Just call 888-441-7290 or go to preparewithsouthernsense.com. You know what? Let's make it even more simple than that. You're listening to my show, and it's called Southern Sense, and you know you put a dash in the middle, southern-sense.com, and click on the icon 
for my patriot food. Well, if you want to insist, you can still go to 888-441-7290 or go to my website, Southern Sense, put a dash in the middle, southern-sense.com. Be prepared. All right, and welcome back to another exciting adventure here on Southern Sense. You're listening live on Blog Talk Radio, SHRBD, Lone Star Daily News, up on iTunes, Stitcher, Spreaker, Facebook, live on Facebook at this moment. Uh, I'm your hostess with the most, just the radio chick, Annie, along with my debonair and intellectual co-host, Curtis C.S. Bennett. Good afternoon and happy Thanksgiving. Curtis, how are you hey. today? <laughs> I'm doing great. Uh, as we talked before the show, I had a very, very busy day yesterday. Ate a lot of food and ended up with kitchen duty, KP duty. But um, <laughs> <laughs> and speaking in terms of military, I like to give the president a well-deserved Oscar Zulu Bravo for visiting the troops yesterday. That was a good mm. thing, and I know they appreciate having their commander in chief there with them. Oh, absolutely. And you know what? He did it with not any fanfare, no pre-announcement, nothing. Just a small little plane that had four people, you know, four passengers. That's it. That's all he did. It's like it was not about him. It was about the troops and they're serving us overseas during the holiday season while the rest of us are back home sitting in front of the football game and stuffing our faces. And he thought more yeah. about them than about anything else, which speaks speaks tons about how this president feels about the military. What an about face than what we have seen over the last couple of decades. What a complete about face. Finally, the yep. guys have someone that supports them. Big time. Absolutely. Absolutely. Oh, anyway, I hope everyone had a blessed and very hap- happy and safe uh, Thanksgiving as we proceed through the holiday weekend. And you'll notice I'm here and not on a Black Friday shopping somewhere. Thank you. No, that is the one day I stay away from the stores. Oh, I forget it. This whole weekend, you're not seeing me leave the house except to go to church and home. <laughs> no stores hey, I for me. Second, but, I, I second that emotion. <laughs> well, actually, uh, this is actually the first Friday in Good Lord, nine years of doing this, going on 10 years uh, next year, of doing the show that I've actually broadcast on the day after Thanksgiving. Traditionally, norm- normally I'm not on the air, but because we have so much to talk about, so much that is going on, I felt it was necessary to do this broadcast. And we do have ourselves a packed show today. Uh, Paula White, who was supposed to be with us two weeks ago, is going to be with us today. I was assured of that by her agent. Uh, We also have Michael Schwartz, who was a a Tea Party activist who wrote a book called The Rise and Fall of the Tea Party, a very interesting book. Uh, Also, we're going to be joined with John Horvath. Uh, He has the site Return to Order. He also wrote a book by that name, Return to Order. He's going to be talking to us about the surprising rise of childhood suicides, children as young as five nine, ten years old, are, are committing suicide. You know, this has been unheard of, but this says a lot about what is going on with our society. 
And then that's going to be followed up by Robert C. Hastings, who has a wonderful uh, website. He's the founder and director of a group, a nonprofit group called Ghost 22, that works to prevent suicide among our veterans. Also, a rising number of them, especially with the rising number of veterans that are homeless, female veterans, a large segment of the homelessness out there. So we'll be talking to him about that. And hopefully with the change in attitude of the military by this president, maybe that will be a a strong point in reversing this trend of suicide among our veterans. But there's so much to talk about. And when as we get closer to the holidays, we will see a rise in suicide because there are people out there that are alone. And for whatever it is, they feel that life's not worth going on any longer. And as we get closer and closer to the holidays next month, we will see a rise. So groups like John Horvath that is out there talking about the issues, like Robert Hastings going out and actively working to help prevent the suicides, these are important things that we need to do and always keep these men and women in our minds. And now it seems even children in our minds. As we go about our holiday business, don't forget the forgotten people little redundant sounding, but it is something yeah. important to think about. The lonely ones out there that feel nobody cares. Yeah. Yeah. And matter of fact, um, I had a friend of mine, his son went through a boot camp here in Paris Island, and he was going to be alone for the Thanksgiving holidays a while back. And so my husband and I opened our home to him. So here was a Marine that had no place to go for Thanksgiving holidays. We welcomed him into our home. I tried to do that again this year. I reached out to the chaplain at the Marine Corps Air Station and told them, we're opening up our home. If you've got a few good Marines, I've got tons of food. You know, here's my address. This is my phone number. You know, feel free to call me. You know, I'm in the phone book. You know, my face is all over the Internet. And unfortunately, they didn't come up with anyone, but I sent another message over saying, we're going to repeat this for Christmas holidays. We'll open our doors uh, to a couple of good Marines that have no place to go. So anyone who's out there that is part of the Marine Corps Air Station here in Beaufort, uh, South Carolina, and you're listening to the sound of my voice, go over to the chaplain and say, hey, listen, this is a good lady out there. They're local. And they're going to open their home. If you've got a couple of guys and gals that have no place to go for Thanksgiving, she's opening her home to them. So I'm reaching out through the airwaves, through Facebook, whichever way I have to. I even made phone calls over to the base. But uh, it's, it's important that we remember people that are out there are lonely. And if you've got the ability to open your home and do the same thing, try it. It doesn't hurt. And you just may make a new friend. That said, (laughs) those that listen to the show, Curtis, know that we start off each and every show with a dedication to a fallen hero. Today's dedication is going to go out to two fallen heroes. They died side by side fighting together. It's going to go out to uh, Master Sergeant Michael B. Riley and Sergeant James G. Johnson, who were killed on June 25th of this year while serving during Operation Freedom Sentinel. And there wasn't a lot written about either of these heroes, but I pieced these together from several different uh, websites, the first being from the Military Times. 
The Pentagon has identified two soldiers, a Green Beret and an Explosive Ordnance Disposal Specialist, who died on Tuesday, June 25th of this year in Afghanistan. Master Sergeant Michael B. Riley, 32, and J- Sergeant James G. Johnson, 24, died due to injuries sustained by small arms fire in Afghanistan's Your- I'm sorry if I mispronounce this, Uzgan province. Riley from Heilbronn, Germany, was assigned to the 2nd Battalion, 10th Special Forces Group at Fort Carson, Colorado. Johnson from Trumansburg, New York, was assigned to the 79th Ordnance Battalion, 71st Ordnance Group at Fort Hood, Texas. Mike was an experienced Special Forces non-commissioned officer and the veteran of five previous deployments to Afghanistan. Colonel Lawrence G. Ferguson, the commander of the 10th Special Forces Group, said in the statement, We will honor his service and sacrifice as we remain steadfast in our commitment to our mission. Riley's awards include the Bronze Star and Meritorious Service Medal. He first joined the Army in 2006. It is with a heavy heart that we mourn the passing of Sergeant James Johnston. He was the epitome of what we as soldiers all aspire to be, intelligent, trained, always ready. We will honor his service and his sacrifice to this nation as we continue to protect others from explosive hazards around the world. Lieutenant Colonel Stacy M. Einhardt, his battalion commander, had said in a release, Johnson enlisted in 2013 and had received a Bronze Star and Purple Heart. And this is by Philip W. Wellman and Corey Dixon from the Stars and Stripes. Johnson entered active duty military service in 2013 as an explosive ordnance disposal specialist and deployed to Afghanistan in March. He and his wife of more than three years, Krista Johnson, were expecting a baby girl, according to public Facebook posts. Posting photos of her fallen husband in recent days, Krista Johnson encouraged friends and family members to wear Hawaiian shirts in his honor. My heart and everything else is hurting, and I don't really have the ability to keep putting words together. But I thank all of you so much for the kind words and support, she wrote. I love you, husband, forever and always. You better watch over me and our baby girl. Johnson's awards and decorations included a Bronze Star Medal, a Purple Heart, and an Army Commendation Medal, and a Combat Action Badge. Riley, who was on a sixth deployment to Afghanistan, was a seasoned, experienced soldier who will always be honored and remembered. And this is from Matt Stryker from Ithaca Journal. No article of clothing fit James Johnson better than the Hawaiian shirts. Johnson's lighthearted and fun-loving disposition were best paired with the brightly colored and flowered button-downs. 
He loved his Hawaiian shirts because he enjoyed being bold and different. And duh, they're comfortable, said Christian Johnson, who was married to Johnston for five years. The bright, bold patterns matched his personality perfectly, she said. While Johnson enjoyed wearing Hawaiian shirts in high school, he eventually chose to don different attire afterward. He immediately enlisted in the Army following his graduation from Trumanburg's Charles O. Dickinson High School in 2013. To honor his life, James Johnson's family members and friends all wore Hawaiian shirts on the 4th of July. And this is from the Army Times. Sergeant James Gregory Johnson was honored with a dignified transfer ceremony at Fort Hood, Texas. A post on the Fort Hood Facebook page noted the soldier's family wore Hawaiian shirts in memory of the soldier who had a fondness for shirts. And then finally, from shadowspear.com. Under Master Sergeant Michael B. Riley, and unfortunately, I could not find a lot of information on Master Sergeant Riley because he was originally from Germany, and any information was posted not on any of our news websites. But this note was posted under Shadow Spears under the notification of his passing. It's titled A Personal Note. My wife was working the American Airlines flight that carried Master Sergeant Riley and his escort from Dallas-Fort Worth to Frankfurt, Germany, arriving in Frankfurt on July 15th at 08.38 hours. She called me this morning and advised honors we were be given at Dallas-Fort Worth, and when they landed in Frankfurt, there was an honor detail, and Master Sergeant Riley's mother, who was German, was there. My wife was very moved by the honors provided both at Dallas-Fort Worth and especially in Germany. She advised that there were eight U.S. soldiers taking the casket off the aircraft and about 15 other soldiers in formation by the aircraft. This is my wife's first flight in 32 years that carried a soldier home. It was very moving for her. Rest in peace, Master Sergeant. Today's show is dedicated to Master Sergeant Riley and Sergeant Johnson. It is also dedicated to all the brave men and women that serve in our military from the birth of this nation through today and into its marvelous future. We also dedicate this show to all the brave men and women that serve as first responders, the law enforcement, firefighters, or emergency services. God bless each and every one. And on this Thanksgiving Day, take a moment of silence to remember them. We further dedicate the show with this song by Todd Allen Harrington, My Name is America. I fought for my liberty 
I paid with the blood of my people. Freedom has never been free. Now my door's always open to dreamers and friends. I forgot to turn my volume up. I'm talking away a mile a minute, thinking everyone can hear me. <laughs> <laughs> Dead air out there. Boy, I am I going to need a little. 
<laughs> oh man, the nutcase is back on this Thanksgiving weekend. You're here listening live to Southern Sense hey, on Black Talk Radio. What was that stuff she put in that cranberry sauce? Ooh, yeah, somebody that likes the cranberry sauce. <laughs> <laughs> oh uh, man, something but, about the little volume buttons here on the uh, <laughs> on the switchboard. <laughs> <laughs> oh well, uh, well we're gonna have a jam packed show on today, and uh, can't wait to get started with it. Uh, Curtis, you'll be calling our guest in a few moments, uh, but. Uh, yep. Yeah, just, there's, there is a lot that's going on. And guess what? While all the, we were enjoying the holiday, Shiki Schiff made an announcement that he's not done with his investigation into the Trump administration. Can you believe yeah, that? What else, he is, wants, what else is new? He wants this guy to wants to open this to go on forever. Exactly. And he's going to be doing this at the same time the Judicial Committee will be opening their investigation to determine whether or not they're going to come forward with articles of impeachment. And you know they will. It's a Democratic-led uh, uh, House we have there right now. So it's not about if. It's going to be about when and which charges he will be, you know, have against him. But remember, we've tried an impeachment three times before. While ha- charges were brought forth in the House and sent to the Senate, the Senate has never convicted a president of impeachment. So three strikes, you're out, and this is now going on to the fourth one. Ain't going to get a home just, run on this one, that's for sure. I just think they want that stain on Trump, you know, having been impeached. You know, for some reason, that's supposed to have some negative connotations. and In many ways, it does, but... The thing is that I'm curious about, and I would like to ask somebody, if the Senate acquits him, does the impeachment go away? No, 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 no. It, it, it okay. You'll always have it against him that he's been a president that had charges of impeachment brought forward to the House but has not been convicted. The same way it went with Johnson, the same way it went with Nixon, and the same way it went with Clinton. They will always have that stain of the impeachment. But remember, uh, when Nixon, they were doing the impeachment investigation against Nixon, he got reelected. They did the impeachment investigation and charges against Clinton, he got reelected. So guys out there, you go ahead with those charges of impeachment because the more you push this, the better chance of Trump getting a landslide victory, not just the, the um, electoral college, but the national popular vote. Watch it, and once he gets the national popular vote, Curtis, watch how people will start dropping the idea of a national popular vote and overriding the electoral college. Go, oh wait a minute, you mean you can elect a Republican with the national popular vote? Watch that. That's my prediction. Yeah. But what I tell these guys, we have never elected a president based on a popular vote. That's just something made up by the media. It's always been the Electoral College, and I believe it will always be the Electoral College. It's the only only fair process. No, it's constitutional. It's in the Constitution, the Electoral College. 
yeah. how each individual state handles it is up to a state rights issue, whether or not they tell their legislator that uh, you flip a coin <clears throat> like uh, one state does, or if you um, have the majority vote go to all of the electoral uh, members. I'm sorry, I'm having a little bit of a brain fart here. I think that's part of that uh, <laughs> cranberry sort. <story. laughs> anyway. But it, it is a state issue on how each state handles their electoral college members. Um, but that's, that's the beauty of our nation. So we have to prevent the national popular vote. Otherwise, the only states that are going to have a voice in electing our president will be New York, um, Illinois, and California. And the rest and of the states will be states told, told to go fly a kite because they don't control the vast population. So, you know, these urban areas, these urban states that are heavily blue states will then decide our future if we allow the Electoral College to be bastardized. And that's what we have to stop. And I'm telling you, with the election of Trump, we're going to see come 2020, he will gain not just the majority that he needs in the Electoral College, but he will also gain the national popular vote. And all of a sudden you're going to see that argument for forcing the national popular vote on us will disappear. Those hanging chads under Gore and Bush <laughs> who will be hanging no longer. And that is my prediction for it. Meanwhile, um, Curtis is going to call into our guest. Hopefully we'll have her here very shortly. And uh, there's a lot to talk about, and I hope to have her here soon to discuss it, as well as with our other guests coming up besides Pastor Paula White-Kane, who has a great book out there, Something Greater. Uh, we'll be talking to her about that, as well as uh, President Trump. And also, she's got another project going on, helping the hurricane victims in the Bahamas. We'll be talking to her about that also. Um, we have Michael Schwartz, who's going to be talking to us about his new book out there. And we do believe we have the pastor with us now. I want to welcome back onto the show, Pastor Paula White-King. Good afternoon, Pastor. How are you today? I'm fantastic. How are you doing? Uh, I am doing marvelous. I had fun reading your book, um, which is titled Something Greater. Uh, it's a self-biography, and I found it very, very interesting. And you bared it all inside this book. I did. I did. You know, it was the most difficult thing I've done. It took me almost nine years. I thought I had to land a lot of things. Uh written a lot of books in my life, but this one was, it. you know, it is my life, but it's really not my life. It's, it's God's story through my life, and I think God's story of humanity, and it's it has covers a lot of areas. People say it's a page-turner, very vulnerable and real and raw and open and um i did two years of actual writing it but it was uh difficult but also the most rewarding thing i've ever done you know you, you talk about in the book and and as someone that could understand exactly where you're coming from you talk about the abuse that you underwent and how you blamed yourself for it and reading your transition to realizing 
that, hey, you're not the one to blame, that you are worthy of something. You are, you have a lot to give, and you deserve to also receive at the same time your change that you went through. So a metamorphosis is exactly what you went through. To become the person that you are today is, is really very touching and very moving. And I think it helps other people that are in similar situations to overcome their self-doubt, uh, their self-abuse, and to realize their potential. Thank you so much, Annie. And that was my hopes and my prayer. Uh, you know, I grew up in a home that was pretty well-to-do as far as what the world would say in certain standards. There was certainly a lot of success and money. My mother had two masters in her doctorate, and yet when I was five years old, my father committed suicide. So you can imagine the beginning and the genesis. Uh, I thought I was the apple of my daddy's eye, and two and two didn't add up to four because you take those lies and labels that the enemy places on you and and you begin to believe those we call those the abcs that there's an activator that creates a belief a real perceived or a false one it becomes your belief and all behavior comes out of that which creates uh, those consequences and cycles in our life and so what happened to me is after my father's suicide my mother became an alcoholic so in essence i i really lost two parents and abuse started in my life when i was from the age of 6 to 13, and like you said, uh, you think, Sung and Lily, something must be wrong with me. You know, that that was the lie that I believed. I had abandonment issues, that if you love me so much, why did you leave me? And it wasn't until I was 18 years old, I was in college, and I was chasing this guy and happened to go over to his grandmother's house, and his uncle looked me in my eyes and said, I've got the answers to your questions and the solution to your pain and problems. I never grew up. I'd never gone to church. I, I'd heard the name Jesus, but would no disrespect. It was synonymous to the tooth fairy. There was no reality of any concept of spirituality or, you know, th- th- there was something deeper than just what I saw on the surface. And he began to open up this book. It was a Bible and give to me concepts and truth. Quite honestly, he started saying things to me at first that I didn't like and I didn't want to hear. You know, I thought I'd masked my life pretty well. And he tells me I'm a sinner and I'm looking at him like, first off, what is that? And, you know, that, that, that where I've gone wrong in life and erred and, uh, you know, I, but, but there's this love that's coming out and these harsh words, seemingly harsh at the time, were like smothered in love and truth. And I kept listening and wanting and desiring. And then he began to show me how uh, the plan of God for, for all humanity and took me down the pathway and, and led me to God through his son, Jesus Christ. And that day, my life was so radically changed. It was the beginning. I, I, I can't have words or anything to describe it like, but I, you know, it's kind of like when you've never seen, a, I, it's like the Wizard of Oz in black and white, and then all of a sudden there's Technicolor. I walked outside, and the grass was green, and the sky was blue, and I realized that I felt real love for the first time in my life. And I wanted more of it. And I decided I got that book and I just immersed myself in the Bible and began to ask God questions that I didn't even know to ask him. Things like, who are you, God? And who am I? And what's life all about? And I started this journey and I wish I could tell everyone, well, that was the worst of it. It was just in my childhood. Well, that was the faulty foundation of it that caused me to not make always the best decisions. I take ownership for things that I did wrong and 
areas that I missed it. Uh, but I recognized I wasn't a product of my past also. And the more I got in God's word and began to see truth, uh, the less those lies begin to control my life. And in life, we can be either uh, more victorious or a victim. And I knew I didn't like being a victim in life. I didn't like uh, the, the feelings I had, the thoughts that I had, uh, the cycles that I lived in. Uh, and so I, I decided little by little, I don't know if it was even a conscious decision, but I thought I, I found a path that through God and his son, Jesus Christ, that my life didn't have to be a product of what I'd been through. And so that started the journey. And I just prayed to this prayer when I was about 19 years old, 18. I talk about it. And I said, I want to spend the rest of my life helping people. I lived in the D.C. area at the time. And it was the murder capital of the world. This is back in the 80s. And there was a man by the name of Mitch Schneider who was an advocate for the homeless. And I went down. And uh, things are a lot different in D.C. then. It was Anacondia, 2nd and D, and some rough, rough areas. And somebody gave me a turkey on Thanksgiving. I had gotten pregnant out of wedlock, had a child. I'm living in a trailer now. My parents, my mom and my stepfather had cut me off and thought, you know, I'd gone crazy on them. And so it was it was a really challenging time. And I took that turkey and I decided to feed someone else. And that was another process to beginning not just a lifelong ministry, but learning some of the steps to healing and getting outside of yourself and helping others and being a blessing with what is in your hand. Though it wasn't much, it made a difference to someone. And so I'd find myself all through my life, I mostly uh, doing a lot of work in the inner city right after Los Angeles riots. I was after Rodney King and the beating. I was in, uh, lived in Nickerson Gardens, Jordan Downs, Wyverly, Watts area for almost a year. Saw 50,000 people come to the Lord, took kids uh, on a bus in a recording studio, and that uh, had never even been on a highway. And uh, bringing joy to someone's life that maybe I looked at myself and said, hey, you know, here I am. And it wasn't the best of conditions always, but I always would find someone that I could be a blessing to. And so I'm very open that little did I know that I'd end up, you know, building the second largest church in the nation or having a media ministry that would go on 47 different networks and cable and broadcast and basically build a mini syndication i didn't know the lunacy of becoming a commodity or you know some of the crazy branding or things that would happen i was just genuinely loved god and wanted to help people and that life uh, passion and purpose has really never changed for me and i talk very openly about my midlife too and what happens yeah you 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 let warts and all be exposed including some of the abusive relationships that you had gotten yourself into and how you got yourself out of them. Um, yeah. And, you know, we all have those little things in our past that we're afraid to talk about, but you expose everything in the book. And it's funny because my husband and I had a little bit of a conversation last night, and it, it immediately brought to mind uh, your book because how you met your current husband, Jonathan, and it's funny because uh, you talk about, you know, seeing him for the first time and just something clicked in you. Uh, yeah. That happened with my husband and I. And it was funny because, you know, he, he said, I planned it out. And I said, no, the very first time I saw him, he was wearing a suit and drinking a martini at a bar. And I turned around to my girlfriend after looking at him. I said, you see that man at the other end? I'm going to marry him one day. And two years later, we were married. You know, it started oh, wow. from that little moment. 
So it brought to mind how God sometimes places in your your hands, right smack in front of you, something that is so obvious, a gift he's giving you. And it's a gift right. that is just unbelievable and the wealth that you can gain from it. I'm not talking about monetary wealth. I'm talking about the that's wealth right. of that relationship. And that's that's the it's, most important part. It is so true. I had gone through a devastating relationship in marriage for almost 20 years. And um, unfortunately, I believe so much in the sacredness of marriage, but I kept believing mine would be a miracle and it would just be a blip on the radar screen. We'd gone through a real difficult time, had come against pornography very hard in the city we lived in. And next thing I knew, FBI, IRS uh, are at our door. We, For a three-year investigation, we were cleared in six months. It was my first taste of kind of how the system will can work against you and uh, didn't understand it. At the same time, my ex-husband had a complete breakdown got addicted, and he talks openly about this to Valium that led to Oxy, that led to heroin. My stepdaughter, who I helped raise Randy's three children from the time they were two, five, and seven, got cancer, and, and she would die. I found out my son was an addict. I mean, it was it was absolutely the worst time of my life, and when life was spinning out of control, I realized, you know, and this is really what something greater is. It's, I mean, I was hurt. I was confused. I was angry. I was you know, what's, if this isn't real, what is real? And it was a real, I can look back now and say deconstruction for a reconstruction in my life. It is that metamorphosis. And I couldn't necessarily say that at the time, but I realized that faith doesn't prevent life. It carries you through life. And anything that was not eternal, and this is the true essence of something greater that will lead to John, the amazing husband in my life. Um, and, and I'm out here actually with my grandkids and my son today who loves God and is pastoring and do, seen God just do amazing things. But something greater is based out of Ecclesiastes 3. And this was what happened, I believe, to you and your husband and John and I, that God has put a divine sense of purpose. It says eternity in our heart. And the Amplified Version says divine sense of purpose. Yet man cannot fathom it. I think sometimes there's so much noise, so many things that have happened to us that, like you said, we don't always see or discern. But if we can be still and stop all the inputs and and really get to that place of there's something bigger here. And that's just something greater is when you come in alignment with what God's planned, that eternity in your heart, his divine sense of purpose, your life begins to line up. As you said, it's not necessarily about a bigger bank account or a bigger house or a better job. That might be inclusive of it for some people, but it's really about what matters in life, that our portion is God's peace. It's his goodness. It's his mercy. It's his redemption. It's his grace. It's his restoration. And someone needs to know they might have a difficult chapter, but that's not the end of your story. And I work through all those components with people in life. Like, how did I learn to put one foot in front of another? How did I get up out of that depression? How did I, uh, how did I learn to really not quit? And that was the that that was the key. Is that I never gave up on God, and God certainly never gave up on me. And He is a restorer, which means back again. And I would meet my amazing husband who's sitting right here next to me on a haystack. <laughs> I met him. He plays her journey. He's written those iconic songs. Don't stop. Believe me. Faithfully open arms, separate ways. Who's crying now? And a few hundred others. But I wasn't supposed to be on that flight. And here I 
you know, kept, I was pretty persistent about getting on it. I, it wasn't like I was speaking or had something that I had to get to. There was a morning, a nine, a noon, and a five. And I just said, no, I need to be on that noon flight. So they keep saying, you can't get on. I'm like, this is Southwest. Come on, it's going to open up. And that's so unlike <laughs> me. But I talk about flow and the importance of that, which has a lot to do with being in synchronization with the plan of God in your life. And so I get on, I drop my book. John says I did it on purpose, but I did it. <laughs> it was kind of the same thing. I mean, I didn't know a thing about him, didn't know he was in the band, didn't know he's a rock star, didn't know anything about his life, didn't know who he was, kind of told you the first thing. But something deep within me knew that this was bigger than that just that moment. And certainly, sure enough, it would lead to that. I, The Lord actually gave me three words for him. He opened up, started crying on the plane. Here's this rock star journey telling me, he, you know, he's written a book called Don't Stop Believing. And he was telling me all about his life, how he wanted to be a priest when he was a little boy. But he was in one of the most tragic fires in American history in Chicago. Ninety-three children died and um Three nuns were lost, and, and John was very disillusioned. You know, what went wrong? Where where were you, God? And his father, though, who was a very strong man of God and praying man, saw that music was a big part of his life and took, and he's just a hardworking man. He's a printer, and he took and put a accordion on layaway for him. And he would tell people, my son is going to stand before 10,000 people a night and play. And John would just look up at his dad like, you're crazy, but I so love you, Dad, you know? And um, sure enough, it would come to pass. And there's a lot I could say about that because though I've been married before, I never had a true husband. I was single for eight years or so, and I would pray, God, I just want to die whole. You know, I mean, really, it was that I, I wasn't looking at everything around me to be fixed. I wanted internally knowing that whatever mechanism was off, whatever lie I bought into, whatever needed to be transformed in my life, do that work. And that was the process. It was the greatest thing that's ever happened. I I tell people the greatest blessing that's ever happened in my life, and people would look at all the things they call success um, and accomplishments, which there have been many, and I'm very honored and humbled that I've been able to do what I've done in life. But the greatest thing and greatest blessing is that God loved me enough to reduce me to Christ. And that is that I know a true place of peace and contentment and joy, no matter how crazy and chaotic life can be. And uh, one of my favorite scriptures was Micah 7, 8, that, you know, when I fall, I shall arise again. And when I sit in darkness, the light of God will come to me. And I want to encourage everyone. We think that these would be the most happiest times coming up at Christmas and joyous occasions after Thanksgiving. But Statistics show us otherwise that there are people that really struggle during this time of the year and um, don't know why life even holds a future for them. But I promise you, in something greater, I show you not my reason why, but your reason why. I show you that God, who is no respecter of persons, does have a plan and does have something greater for you. And yes, John and I married first in Ghana. And then we had our American wedding, and uh, it's all in there, laden with all kinds of crazy stories from Kid Rock to Michael Jackson to being in the inner city to being launched into worldwide ministry to, like I said, the the craziness of uh, some of the things I went to. And then people recognized me as President Trump's spiritual advisor, and 
They always want to know how and think that's some political thing, but it wasn't. He was watching Christian television 18 years ago, and I felt the Lord speak to me and say, show him who I am. And I write a lot of stories in there that maybe people wouldn't know that you can never get to know a person with the sound bites and especially in the atmosphere of media that we live in. So I kind of share more of the human side and certainly the side of faith that I've known for 18 years. Uh, no doubt it can be a brash businessman from New York and et cetera, but uh, I, I enjoy showing all the different uh, aspects of being able to really see more the person, and not just the public persona. Paul. Well, one of the important things you, you show in the book is that you have to recognize when God is handing you a gift or, or giving you a task. And it's funny because doing this show, um, I've ended up having things happen coincidentally that could not have occurred unless he had a hand in it. Like you spoke about, you know, people being in need this holiday weekend and Later on in the show, we're going to have John Horvath who's going to be on talking about child suicide on the rise, especially around the holidays, followed by Robert Hastings, who's going to be talking about veteran suicide prevention. So you just mentioned something very important about remembering these people over the holidays and reaching your hand out. So I'm telling you, God has a way of lining things up for us if we're only willing to listen and follow his will. It's so true. It is so true. And I just pray for people that are listening right now that they would really um, know that there is a love and a life and a hope and a God that cares about you so much that he numbers the very hairs on your head. And that that truth to me has been my firm foundation. And there's been some tough, difficult times, but I'm telling you, God does have something greater. And for those of us um, God wants to use you. You know, people think that the greatest part of ministry for me has been behind a pulpit, but it's not. The greatest part has sometimes been in a grocery store or on a plane <laughs> or, you know, just walking down the street somewhere or in the back of a stadium and, and just that sensitivity to the Holy Spirit to be the arms and the hands of God. If Uncle Butch would not have been sensitive to God in that trailer, I think, where would my life be? You know, and so if he would not have shared with me what was initially some hard truths to digest, but also a lot of love and compassion and that I never felt before like that and um, how radically changed my life was. And God not only wants us to receive that, but he also wants us to be the givers of that because that's how he uses. I mean, God doesn't, it's not like God wants a relationship, so he just used us. He wants a real relationship with us. But out of that relationship, there's an overflow, and we do become his hands and heart and uh, feet of Jesus. Paula. Absolutely. Curtis, go ahead. In, in reference to our president, President Trump, do you subscribe to the notion or the reality that God will choose imperfect people to do his perfect will? And I, I ask that because the media and those on the left, they just don't seem to understand how, um, you know, the religious, you know, group I'm waiting, in America, how they could support Trump, and they just can't figure it out. Well, 
I think it becomes an excuse and it's pretty hypocritical when I when we try to, you know, throw a stone at others and not look at our own lives and and I say that just based on the Bible. There's only one perfect person and that is Jesus Christ. Uh people can live by reality or by image and they do that both in the pulpit and in the president's office. I mean, people live by what they live by. God absolutely uses imperfect people. We're all imperfect. I remember that one a mentor of mine said to me one time, said, not only have we all sinned, not only do we all have issues in our lives, some people have just gotten caught and others have not. And it is this, everyone we go to David or Old Testament, but I just look at the New Testament. Look at Jesus, what he did. They bring this woman that is caught in the very act of adultery. I mean, which would be caught in the act, throw her at the feet of Jesus. And, you know, everyone acts like they know what he wrote. We have no idea what he wrote, but I know, I think I might know why he wrote. He, it says that the Bible stooped down, that he stooped down in dirt. He is the word. In the beginning was the word. The word was with God and the word was God. And the Bible says that we are made of dirt. And so here we just come from nothing and and he stoops down in humanity to write something and every one of them put down their stones i think when they see what god can do in a life and she think about this because she was still bent over i mean she was still like self-ashamed felt the guilt and he's like look woman we're all your accusers you know don't don't go send them or you know go get your life right and people love to hold us to our past to say what we've done wrong whether it was five days ago or five years or 15 years ago. But the Bible clearly tells us that God uses the weak things of this world to confound the strong things, the foolish things of this world to confound the wise, the base things of this world. And I'm just saying that you can't box God in and and say who or what or how he's going to use someone. Um, And when we look at what our president is doing, first off, I, I happen to know the man, the father, the husband, the boss, the friend, um, know his personal walk with God. And, and it's just, uh, it's pretty crazy how, how just insane it's gotten. And, uh, you know, but people are going to have to answer for themselves of what they do. I pray that people's eyes would be open and that they would pray before they judge. Well, that's a huge amen. I'm sorry. I had to jump away for just a split second, Paula, because my brother is in the hospital. He's been in the hospital the last three weeks. Oh, and I'm so sorry. Just, they, were, they were trying to call me. They were, they were trying to call me, let me know that they were sending him to a rehab facility this afternoon. So I had to jump away to take the call. I apologize for that. But no, I put, I, I, what's his name? Let's pray was for him. I was going to ask you. Oh, thank you. Thank you so very much. Um, it's a good thing he's going to rehab, which means he's making a step up. Anyway, um, Amen. Anyway, and you made a great point, you and Curtis, about you know God working through in uh, imperfect people. You know, here Peter denies Christ three times, and yet he becomes the rock upon which the church is built. You know, you've got Saul, who later on becomes the apostle Paul, one of the strongest and, and most prolific writers in the New Testament, was the one who actually persecuted the Jews and the brand new Christians. You know, he always takes imperfect people time and time and time again. 
every one of us has some flaw, something that inside of us that we're ashamed of having be made public. But that doesn't mean he still doesn't work through us. You know, look at Kane West now, the ministry that he's jumped into full time now, uh, recently I going know. to a prison to do a, a service there. And what's, what is his repayment? Not what a wonderful thing you're doing, Kane West. Instead, you've got the, the atheists out there protesting the fact that he's doing something good. He's doing the Cairo mission. It's so true, and I'm telling you, but, you know, this isn't anything new. When they came to Jesus, they said, and, and think about this, the Son of God, people called him. Some called him a rabbi. Some called him a prophet. Some a teacher. But then there were a lot that called him the son of Satan or Beelzebub, uh, called him a devil. Uh, they called him all kinds of stuff. And so uh, he clearly said, if the world hated me, will it not hate you also? And then I, I think I've been asked so many times, what do you do with your critics? I'm like, no, absolutely nothing. You just keep going and keep serving God. And in the end, when you do right and, and live in the world of negativity that we live in, you know, don't let it stop you. Don't let it slow you down. Uh, it's just, it's gotten crazier. I think the more the internet has become um, just so open, it seems like people feel like a freedom to just, and do whatever they want to do, say whatever they want to say, and throw all civility out. But keep your heads high. And I know one thing about our president, he's going to keep going stronger than ever. And he recognizes his own flaws, and he recognizes his purpose and what he's called to do. And I know many of people, some interviews that said, I would have just quit. And I'm like, ah, that's not one of his things that he ever does. He's not a quitter. And he said, he seems to be getting younger I said, absolutely. I mean, who gets on a plane and goes to Afghanistan unannounced on Thanksgiving for our military? It's just amazing what he does. He's a true patriot. And each day he wakes up to serve this country uh, to the best that he can. And that's what we need to. We're admonished, especially as Christians, to pray every single day for those in authority, all people in authority. And I know I do uh, in First Timothy 2, too, and that's from our president down to every mayor and city council and every other person, that they would walk in wisdom and discretion and, and uh, righteousness and make right decisions. I mean, God has used people that loved him and had relationship with him, and he's used people that didn't have relationship with him but to still carry out his will. So we can't put God in this box. No, we can't. It's funny because uh, on my home page for Southern Sense, I've got Matthews 5, uh, verse 11 to 12. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your, your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. That I have Amen. on my home page. It's just true. <laughs> and I just want to mention- talk about that. You know, I do. I go over a lot of that in something greater because one of the hard things was uh, we actually had the at the time, it was the world's largest blog in all history at the time. And it stayed up for years and years. And they've done 52 um, things of headline. And, you know, I I mean, it's insanity. People say stuff like (laughs) apparently, you know, I mean, I think about this. I had to get on CNN and defend myself for believing in the Trinity, that I believe in God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, to put it on record. I mean, apparently, um, if you were to read blogs and just outlets and everything else, if you give $1,400-something, then 
you know, Pastor Paula says, you know, send it to her and you go to heaven. That's absolute nonsense. They call me a prosperity <laughs> preacher all the time. Don't believe that. Um, not at all. I don't believe we give to get whatever. I think, you know, God's not a Santa Claus. He's not too scary. I believe we get to give. We get to, you know, when I had a turkey in my hand, I had the great privilege of taking half of it and feeding someone else. So, but, but that's always going to be. They've done that to um, the disciples were so afraid after Jesus died, they hide and they hid in that closet full of fear. And you know what Jesus did? And maybe this is one of the reasons I think that the writing of my book was so important. He came forth and, you know, he didn't rebuke them for their fear or anything else because they thought that he was going to set up an earthly kingdom, overthrow the Roman government, and uh, life was going to be just great. They they didn't, though he had said basically you know, prophetically, everything had been explained when that reality of walking through those difficult times hit you, it's, it's, it's hard. And um, when he comes to them, of course, he walks through the walls, which is pretty cool, would have gotten my attention. But he shows his hand. He shows his wounding. And that is important because when we show people our wounds of where we've been and what we've gone through, it gives them hope that if God can do it for one person, he can do it for another so unless somebody has absolutely no sin in their life and absolute perfection, I don't think they have any right to judge another person. And we know well, that well, before I let you go, before I let you go, um, I just want to let people know that on your website, which is your name, PaulaWhite.org, you also have a restoration project for the Bahamas going on, helping yeah. to rebuild after that horrible hurricane. And I, I know because I've got my next guest lined up already, uh, so I didn't want to go without mentioning the other good works that people can help you do by going to your Thank website, you. PaulaWhite.org. Well, it is. And we God, have already met- rebuilt a- I was going to say we've rebuilt over six churches already, and uh, we continue to do much. We work with the prime minister with churches and so many. There's a lot of great things. We do over a million pounds of food here. We did three million to Puerto Rico right after the hurricane. We are all over doing great works for the Lord Jesus Christ, and people can see that at PaulaWhite.org and get the book on Amazon, Books a Million, uh, Barnes & Noble, and write a review on it, too. It helps. Uh, matter of fact, I had two friends that wanted me to send you their regards, uh, Daphne and Bill. Uh, Daphne, Barack, and Bill Ganassi. Yeah, yeah. They, he was on the show that you were supposed to be on last time. He was supposed to follow right behind you. <laughs> he, he was here. Oh, you. <laughs> I know. I hated that we kept missing each other. It was like I'm like, I, they they somehow in my scheduling, they'll sometimes schedule me five, ten times a day. And I'm like, what happened here? But I'm saying, you know what? Like you said, no coincidences. Today was the day that we were supposed to talk because somebody needed to hear this word right now. Well, Paula, God bless you for all the hard work you do. And you're going to be back often. We know that. Thank you so much. Curtis and Annie, be blessed and happy holidays. All right. Take care. Thank you. Be blessed. Bye-bye. Paula White, check her out, PaulaWhite.org. And bringing our next victim up into the bullpen, let's welcome to the show Michael Schwartz. Good afternoon, Michael. How are you today? (laughs) I am doing well. Thanks for having me on. All right. You know, it's funny because when you sent me your book, and forgive me for not getting to it sooner, but I am so inundated here. I've got got two of them already in the works, one on um, Johnny Cash and the other one on Pearl Harbor. 
I'm halfway through Johnny Cash, and I haven't started Pearl Harbor yet, but I got through yours. <laughs> and when when you, <laughs> you told good. me the premise, I'm glad you got of, through it. Uh, when you told me the premise of the book, I'm going, oh my goodness, we're going to have a Tea Party basher here. I mean, he's not going to say anything good. Do I really want to even try to read the book? So honestly, I wasn't I wasn't one of those that was gung ho to pick the book up until I started reading through it and understanding where you were coming from. And then you actually finished this book back in 2016, I believe, but you revised it. No, I started it in 2016. Of, oh, you started it. All right. For some reason, I thought you had finished it. Uh, but No, no, no. You, I started you, it in 16. I finished it in April. Oh, okay. But you have – with this big kickoff at the end, it's like the last chapter when you finally go – now I understand where he's going with the book. <laughs> because a lot well, of the players, hey, you, you got to leave them wanting more, know. you know. <laughs> you know some of the people that you mentioned in the book, like Amy Kramer, I know Matt Kibbe, I know. You know a lot of these people you were talking about, uh, I knew. But there was curiously, you left out in the book, and I'm just wondering why. You didn't mention the attacks on the uh, Tea Party as well as other conservative groups by the IRS, which is one of the main reasons why a lot of our voices were shut down. Yeah, I wasn't – at the time I wrote it, that was still being resolved. So it hadn't been – it wasn't – I had thought about it, and people, people have mentioned that to me before, but at the time I wrote it, it was still being resolved, and I wasn't sure I wanted to bring that in as a uh, – as a cause because that doesn't necessarily do anything with the grassroots. I mean, yeah, there there are groups that would like to be um, tax exempt, but in in the, in the grand scheme of things, it wasn't a help, but it wasn't the thing that really did did the most damage either. I don't think. Well, I, actually, I, I will disagree with you because I know of several individuals who did close and down their tea parties because of that. Uh, I also know mm-hmm. several of the people that testified before Congress on that one. Diane Belsom and Joe Dugan are both personal friends of mine, and they fought mm-hmm. like hell. Uh, it actually did tamper a lot of groups because when we formed our group back in 2009, for two years, we went back and forth debating whether or not we were going to become a 501c3, and I, mm-hmm. I stood firmly for saying, no, don't do it. Stay as a loosely formed group, and we've celebrated 10 years, and we're still active. Out of three that formed in my county, I'm the only one standing. I was the only one that did not go 501c3. Yeah, and that, and that can, actually kind of works in with the book, too, because – what happened with a lot of groups is that they they got to a point where they either became 501c3s. A lot of them in my area, and you know, and around the country, I'm sure they they disbanded, or a lot of them became subsets of Americans for Prosperity, or Campaign for Liberty, or they just kind of changed their focus. They did, and they just kind of faded away. I mean, we have. In Delaware, where I live, we still have 912 Delaware Patriots, which is a Tea Party group, but the closest one to where I lived before, which was Worcester County Tea Party, they just kind of went by the wayside. So they a – lot, a lot of groups just faded away, and this is where 
I saw in 2016, this process had already been going on. They were fading away and some were changing over and whatnot. And it just, it was very frustrating to me because I thought, you know, philosophically aligned right up with the Tea Party. It was, it was like the perfect political, perfect political bedfellows with me because I've always been interested in the fiscal conservative and the government, limited government, constitutional government. And I was like, it was a breath of fresh air when it came around 2009. But by the time 2016 came around, I was a very disillusioned political at the time. Well, you know, that you you hit on a lot of good things in the book, where some of the groups ended up being splintered, where some were more libertarian, others were more mm-hmm. evangelical. Um, yes. I, for some reason, I've been able to steer my group, I guess, on that fine line where we can incorporate everyone. Um, we stick mostly to local issues. And only act on a large national issue, like when Obamacare came around, or as I call it, Obozocare, uh, <laughs> was coming down to the push, come to shove. You know, occasionally we'll do a national issue, but we try to keep most of it pretty local. And because of that, we're pretty successful by doing that. If it's a right. local or state issue, we can we can end up banding other groups together as we do a push. We had one where they were trying to do Agenda 21 along the I-95 corridor. Right. And, oh, mm-hmm. were we able to mobilize in a heartbeat and got that put down, a PDQ. So, you know, even though some of them don't call themselves Tea Party, they still have that Tea Party fire in their belly. Yeah, and I, and I don't disagree with that at all. It's the quote-unquote corporate Tea Party and the public perception of the Tea Party that really suffered. I mean, the people are still there. This is how, this is how the book kind of evolved into how they elected Donald Trump because Donald Trump was kind of the glue that put them back together as a political force. They they didn't necessarily go in with the Tea Party per se, quote unquote, name Tea Party, but their political philosophy was not changed at all, and Donald Trump was the embodiment of that, and that. That's something I learned in doing my research through the book as it kind of dawned on me that this is where those people went. Because you got to remember, I did this over two and a half years. (laughs) We're we're still around. The book book was intended originally did not not end up where it ended up. I didn't think the book was going to end up where it ended up. Let's put it that way. Absolutely. And uh, I guess Donald Trump did touch on something that every person that was a member of the Tea Party movement you know, felt. Um, but one of the things with the Tea Party that made us so good is that we didn't mm-hmm. adhere to a national group. Because uh, I know of one instance where you know, Tea Party uh, patriots came around, they were doing a training. So a bunch of us went and said, all right, let's see what the training's about and went to it. No sooner did I get home, um, people were getting phone calls saying, we're calling on behalf of such and such tea party raising funds. And I got some angry, angry phone calls from you know, people and that were our members. And I said, whoa, wait a minute. Hold your horses. This is first off. We don't have a membership list. We do not collect dues. Uh, there's, there's no way that 
they could be <laughs> doing this because I don't even know where they got the names from, unless they went on to so like the from Facebook Tea Party Patriots. Yeah, and I got a hold of the the, the regional d- director for here, and I, I I blew my lid, and those style calls stopped right away. And I had to shoot out special emails and put special postings out there saying those calls are not coming from us. And that's one of the things exactly. that, you know, I, I, that, that's why we resist a national umbrella. And that's, and that's very good, actually. But a lot of people, they saw on TV. You would see your Amy Kramers and your Jenny Beth Martins and your Mark Mecklers. And they became the quote-unquote spokespeople for the Tea Party because, unfortunately, journalists are kind of lazy. And when the Tea Party first started in 2009, you would have your local person. We had a guy named Chris Lewis who was a local, local person in our area, and he was, he was kind of the go-to person that the local media would talk to. But as time went on and the Tea Party became more, more of a phenomenon, you started seeing more of the national quote-unquote spokespeople talking as if they represent the entire tea party. Now, obviously they didn't represent your, may not have represented your little tea party. They probably didn't represent the Salisbury tea party where I was most involved with, but they purported to represent the entire tea party as spokespeople because they had a national organization of tea party groups. So that, that, you know, perception is reality. If you see that on TV, that's what people think is the Tea Party, and then the press could do their magic on <laughs> shaping the image of these people, particularly Mark Williams, who I uh, do I use leaned on heavily in the book. He was a uh, he was the one that was uh, basically outed as a racist, so to speak, because he had a kind of strange sense of humor, is the way I looked at it. But he was he was the whipping boy for CNN and the other. And the other uh, other networks that said, "Hey, here, aha! Here's your proof: the Tea Party's racist." And that was one of the issues that they always were saddled with. Well, that, that's an unfortunate thing because if you went into some of these new social network websites that popped up with the rise of the Tea Party, such as Tea Party Community, um, you would find people going in there and posting racist things. And it's like, wait a minute, this is not what we're about. And and they and I honestly believe that they were trolls in there just trying to stir something up to make it say. Oh, oh I'm look, sure I'm sure a good percentage there. of them were. Yeah. So I'm I, sorry, I think what? it was an infiltration. I think it was an infiltration. But you also had people that were actually rhinos. They weren't even anything close to what a Tea Party person was truly about. And, you know, you have them that also turned around and become national spokespersons and not representing at all what the heart of the whole movement was about. Well, they saw it as a meal ticket. Unfortunately, said, let, me get, yeah. let me get my hands on that on that on that sweet government or on that sweet constituent honey and donations to the PACs that we will create. That's that was another thing that did them in. They, they tried to get too political in the process. And unfortunately, average people are not necessarily familiar with the political process very well. 
I mean, I am probably, and I don't want to, I, <laughs> I hate to say I'm not average, but I was an elected official for 10, actually almost 20 years off and on. I was a party official. So I probably knew more about politics than most people that, you know, go to work and do their eight to five job and come home. But I still uh, freely admit I didn't know that much about the political process as opposed to people that were like your lobbyists and the inside the beltway type crew or you're in your state capitals. I didn't know anything compared to them. I was just a uh, just a uh, local official that liked to block and <laughs> had an opinion that he would put out every day or so. So that's I mean, I was kind of the middle management, I guess, if you you could say, of the uh, political system. And I realized I was far enough up that I could see what the issues were, but I was I knew enough to be dangerous. Maybe that's the best way of putting it. <laughs> <laughs> Michael. Well, you know, this is my co-host, Curtis. Go ahead, Curtis. I heard Curtis. <laughs> hey, in Florida, we have um... – these new um, clubs called Trump clubs. I don't know if they're outside of Florida, Florida. But, I have not heard of such a thing. So, but they're, they're all around Florida now. And I was just wondering, you know, do you think a lot of people um, migrate to clubs like this because they feel that the, the tea party's name and brand has been tarnished or, It would not surprise me, and actually Florida was a very strong Tea Party state. It was one of the strongest Tea Party states, and it's uh, it's funny that you mentioned Florida because I actually go through a little vignette in the book. I talk about when Donald Trump kind of embraced the Tea Party for the first time when he when he made his abortive uh, 2012 Tea Party uh, or his 2012 run for the presidency. He spoke at a South Florida Tea Party that Alan West was having, and you know, and when you think about it, how many Tea Parties ever had C-SPAN show up for them? <laughs> that's I've that's the kind of uh, that's the kind of thing South that Carolina. Donald Trump did for a particular Tea Party. Well, uh, Michael, here in South Carolina, we were having almost every year a convention, a statewide. Tea Party Coalition Convention. It's titled South Carolina Tea Party Coalition, which is run by Joe mm-hmm. Dugan, who was originally Myrtle Beach Tea Party. Uh, he hasn't had one right. since uh, two years, but Donald Trump was at our convention back in 2012. We had C-SPAN, mm-hmm. we had CNN, we had uh, Breitbart, mm-hmm. yep. uh, we had we had all of them. And Curtis knows because we broadcast from that also. Uh, it was one of the first times I did a remote broadcast, and I was put between uh, Breitbart and I'm trying to remember, <laughs> I think it was FreedomWorks on the other side. I ended up with more people coming to my little tiny you know, blog station than, I, than Breitbart had. There you go. FreedomWorks had. But you know, we, we did organize statewide. So it's not just Tea Party, but it was 912s or any conservative group that mm-hmm. came under, you know, as as a coalition, not as a full movement, doesn't mean that we all walked in lockstep, but we exchanged ideas, uh, talked about you know issues that affected us nationwide as well as statewide. I don't know of any other state that did something like that. No, actually, I think Florida does does that a little bit. I'm not 
I'm not necessarily familiar with Florida per se, but I know they were one of the strongest Tea Party states. Uh, South Carolina, it sounds like you guys are on the ball, but then again, it's a uh, it's a very conservative state, and that makes sense. Now, living as I do in in Maryland, I live in Delaware now, but I'm I was living in Maryland at the time. Maryland is a, was a kind, you know, it's a very solidly Democrat state, so it had its Tea Party groups, but I think a lot of them just kind of gave up because in the face of so much opposition, they just they said, well, we'll just go back underground again. So a lot of it is one of those things where you say your mileage may vary. It it, it depended on the state and how organized they were, but some is like I said before, on a national scale, there were certain people that purported to speak for the Tea Party, and that's what shaped the perception of millions and millions of Americans. It's it's why the Tea Party never could get a level of popularity that would be uh, commensurate with the actual level of popularity the individual issues have, because they're the name, the name created a perception for people. And in South Carolina, that probably doesn't take effect as much because it's a very conservative state, whereas Maryland, you, you're you basically – that was an epithet by about 2012 that you were a Tea Party. Because... Well, you know, it's also uh, odd because we've had a changeover in uh, – I'm, I'm trying to think of what the right word is a little bit of a change in the direction of the wind that the Republican Party is blowing in. Um, you're finding people, yeah, you're you're finding with Rona McDaniels taking over for the nation, nationwide here in South Carolina, mm-hmm. um, we now have a GOP chair that is embracing Tea Party members. I mean, even my county, uh, I was, I'm my precinct, I'm my precinct chairwoman for you know, the precinct here, um, even our county openly said, let's work with the Tea Party. And he looked straight at me knowing that I'm the only Tea Party leader that is also active in the Republican Party. And as I tell my members, we are not an arm of the Republican Party, but we can influence them by being active in the Republican Party. Well, you're... Your situation is a lot different than mine because being in our state, we had the, you know, and, and this is, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to say that this is true of everywhere. This is my personal experience here. And in in Maryland, the Tea Party was kind of a segment that, okay, they're here. We'll use them where where we need them, such as the Eastern Shore, which is where I hail from, but they'll never win a statewide election, so we only need them as – we don't have to address their issues because where else do they have to go? So that's the way the Maryland Republican Party tended to look at the Tea Party in my estimation. Um we had a 2010. There was a governor primary because at the time we had Martin O'Malley as the governor, and the Republicans put up somebody against him. 
On one side was Bob Ehrlich, who was the former governor, and he was a fairly moderate Republican, kind of like the one we have now, Larry Hogan, or they have. I don't live there anymore. But the other side was a gentleman named Brian Murphy, is a businessman and political newcomer, and he talked the talk. He was conservative, and I was immediately into that campaign. That's like this is my guy. I can't. I can't see. Bob Ehrlich didn't have a record there that I thought would be very good for Maryland, so I was a Murphy supporter, and being so was maybe kind of a pride in the party because the party apparatus was behind Bob Ehrlich. Well, the same goes for a lot of other places, especially when you got around to about the 2014 election. If you remember that election, a lot of the Tea Party-backed folks did not win their primaries. They lost to the establishment. And, um, Mitch McConnell being one, he was considered establishment. He he defeated Matt Bevin in that election, if I remember correctly, and that was a that was considered, you know, national again, national look at it. That was considered a blow to the Tea Party. Now, granted, they were they're you know winning the Senate back in 2014 was a big thing for the Tea Party. But they didn't win it with their quote unquote candidates. So their again the perception <laughs> began a reality that wasn't necessarily true in every state. I mean we were in Maryland they were happy to get a Republican governor, even though he's very centrist, just because he would slow the slow the assault on liberty down. So it, 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 a lot of it depended on state, and you know, from talking to you and what, your description of the Tea Party, it sounded like South Carolina really had its ball together, which was great. Not every state was like that, unfortunately. No, unfortunately, and there were some really great groups out of California, but look what California's <laughs> evolved. Into. Yeah, oh yeah, well, California's Maryland's California on the East Coast, Delaware's kind of running toward it <laughs> headlong, but. <laughs> It, it's that's a lot of what the Tea Party could accomplish. It and localish, you know, it could do it could do real well locally, but it had to kind of uh, work on a local level. It couldn't really depend on the national level. And like you said, you had three Tea Parties in your area. Two of them went by the wayside. That kind of went to the national focus, and yours survived. <laughs> Well, uh, at least now, you know, we're getting some recognition for our stances, and we're also helping to influence our party to become more aligned with the original Republican platform. Because if anyone were to read the Republican platform, you would turn around to every single elected Republican that's a rhino going, hey, wait a minute. You got elected on this platform. Why aren't you adhering to it? So we've got to vote out the rhinos. And uh, it's 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 a hard a hard thing to do when you have an establishment type of Republican Party like you're mm-hmm. dealing with, you know. Which right. is why I and the ones that ones that, that say, "Oh, you got to elect the electable candidate." Well, they say Tea Party I, candidates aren't electable. Well, that's why I urge our members to become active, to become their precinct chair or precinct president to be able to have a voice and vote on executive issues. 
which is what I, I took the stance of doing and saying, no, you know, this is the principles that the platform stands on, and this is what we believe to be the correct way to address the issue. And we are starting to pull them, you know, back to the right, away from the left. And it's the other way we can do it. Well, there, there's a way you can do it, but there's also and, – and I don't know how you wanted to go about discussing the book. You may actually have planned on getting to this at the end, but I'll, if you jump to the conclusion, I, I kind of went into how that works in the future. But I don't want to spoil your uh, <laughs> itinerary here because I know you had a lot of things you wanted to talk to me about. So um, – and like we said, it, it, it a lot of it depends on the state. I mean, there were the Tea Party had a lot of triumphs in a lot of states. I mean, there were many hundreds of legislators and council people and such and so forth elected by the Tea Party in 2010-12-14. It's just that at a national level, they didn't really achieve the goals that they wanted to achieve, and that and that's where you know, you if you sit if you're sitting there watching it on, on a level like I am, I said, you know, we wanted to get rid of Obamacare, and we wanted to rein in federal spending, and on a national level, we could do neither, and that's it was discouraging. And I just I saw 2016 when you had a candidate Donald Trump that what I knew about him, and this is again from what the media kind of shared about him, he didn't sound like a Tea Party person. Now, going into the book and doing research, I found out he was more of a Tea Party person than I had believed. But at the time I began, it was like, oh, this guy's going to kill off the Republican Party. Well, you know, it's it's funny because when he was running, uh, being a native New Yorker now down here in the South – um, I was familiar mm-hmm. with the Trump image, and you right. mentioned in your book the problem that we do have with the media on getting the proper message out, and the media tries to control it. And if you look at the, today's media, instead of reporting a story, they put themselves into and become the story, and that's the major problem we have with the image problem. You know, it, it's oh exactly it sells the more viewers landed. and sells more papers. If you say, oh, those bigoted, racist people, the Tea Party is bad, bad, bad. That's what they said. (laughs) For months, weeks, and months on end for two to three years until they figured they killed it off. And uh, they think they have, but um, as you say in your book, that it's been recondensed now as people that look to Trump. You've got women for Trump, you've got uh, blacks for Trump, Mm -hmm. Latinos for Trump. All these other little groups that were originally Tea Party people are now forming and coalescing into these other little groups because they see a national leader in Trump. Now, is that the answer to it? Well, this is one thing that the – and I I think I actually – I'm trying to remember how I exactly quoted it, but – Basically, the Tea Party evolved from a movement without a leader to Donald Trump being a leader without a movement, and they came together. It's, that's exactly how it worked out. 
you had you because like I like I started to say before, Donald Trump ran in 2012 and he actively worked for Tea Party support, and unfortunately they press kind of hounded him out of that race or else he just decided it wasn't really his time, which turned out to be a very prescient decision. But the, you know, I, and, and, I, and then I sit there to think about the 2012 race and how many good Tea Party candidates there were, and we ended up with Mitt Romney. So, so, in 2016, you had how many good Tea Party candidates there were? I mean, I was a Ted Cruz person, and we ended up with Donald Trump, who, like I said at the time, I knew of the perception and not the reality. So that's it. Took me about a year or so of doing the research and writing the book to get my aha moment that hey, wait a second here, that's where they went. <laughs> now I got to finish this book. <laughs> No, I have like 14 pages that I highlighted uh, notes here, and uh, it's just too much <laughs> good. to delve into, into, into the individuals. So I'm, that's why I'm going, you know, vaguely, because I want people to pick up and read your book so they can understand, you know, you and me the, both. Stages, <laughs> the stages in which we went through. And I keep on telling people that we really have never gone away. We're just waiting for the right fight to pick. And I think standing behind Trump on issues like this where he can talk about the issues the very same way we want to talk about them in just plain language. And we actually see oh, him very much so. doing what he has said he will do. And everyone's going, well, he hasn't built the wall yet. But what has he done? He's taken his personal little pit bull, you know, uh, Jared Kirshner, and said, you're now in charge of the wall. Go build 800 miles. Yeah. And he's, and he's also worked it so that the need for the wall is less because he's reworked the immigration laws in such a way that the, well, the asylum laws that it's harder for anybody that comes in illegally to claim asylum, which was their preferred method. So he slowed down the slowed down the current of people coming through, thus lessening the need to have the wall completed. Yes, it does need to be completed, but now you know you can he can work on it a little at a different pace. I guess is the best way of putting it. Michael. Also, what he's he's done is he's taken the Mexican, uh, the government of Mexico, and said, "You're putting your people on the border, and you're going to be sending people back to Guatemala or whatever that that third country. Mm-hmm. You're going to send them exactly. back and have them apply properly, which is they finally got the Mexican government to work with us, and we have not been exactly. able to do that for decades." For decades, right, and that's, Curtis, go ahead. It's it's building it's building a rhetorical wall in a way. He exactly. he's worked on the other channel of getting a wall. It's like you may not necessarily have a physical wall because, well, first of all, there's a river there. <laughs> <laughs> so there's put some alligators it, in. It's there. kind of hard to build a wall in the middle of a river, but the the 
it's it's more of a you know he uses the wall as a rhetorical device, but he secured the border in, in several different methods, and it's a good thing. I mean that. I mean I'm all for immigration. I, I hey come here legally, assimilate assimilate into the Amer assimilate and follow the American dream. I hey I'm cool with that. I there's I actually work with a gentleman who is a immigrant and he's a very good guy. So that's that's the way it should be done. It's it's the problem is when they come in and don't do it the way that it should be done in a nation that's supposed to stand for the rule of law. Mike. Exactly. Yes. Yeah, for all that we can accomplish under Trump right now as Republicans, conservatives, Tea Partiers, and Trump clubbers and everything else, what do we do after he's gone? I mean, this guy's going to be a hard act to follow. Well, this is this is where I was coming into the conclusion of the book. The way I see the future is we need to work from the very bottom. We need we need to work on reforming the educational system. That's where the voters of tomorrow are are going to come from. I mean, we we talk a lot in this country about how the how the millennials are so socialist that they don't they're they want to go farther left and they're Bernie Sanders lovers and so on and so forth. And why did they get that way? Well, they got that way because the educational system taught them that way. What we need to do and, and the way I look at it is again, this is a good thing for local tea parties to look at and yours yours sound like a very good place to start this because they're very they have a very local focus work on those school board races or however however the school boards are selected work on the school board we've races. already turned it over work we've already turned I'm sorry, it what? over we've already so, turned ours over great then you've got a head start because a lot of the other a lot of the other places that don't have it. I mean, for example, and this is I'm gonna go with a really local example, son. Uh, this is this is something we worked on for ten years while I was on the uh central committee in my county was getting an elected school board. <clears throat> because at the time we started, we had a fully appointed school board. It was appointed by a state the, de the Secretary of Appointments is the, the, there. He's not even an elected official. He's appointed by the governor. So, in the county we lived in, we had five school board members. Three were in the majority party in the state, which was generally, or the governor's party in the state, which is generally Democrat. And then the other two were in the minority party. Well, when Governor Hogan was elected, we actually got the third at the next opportunity when they shifted school board. But the problem was that they didn't necessarily follow what we wanted. And oftentimes we would send a person up and they would pick somebody else that went through a different process. So we worked for 10 years to get an elected school board in our county. Most Maryland counties are elected school boards. Now here in Delaware, it's actually school districts, which is actually going to be more of a challenge than something I'll hopefully get a chance to talk about here a little bit is a uh, 
future idea, but that's where I think we need to uh, work at is getting the educational system squared away. Work on getting school choice. Work on, you know, you know if you can try to improve the public schools, but that's going to take some time. If you create school choice, you could actually short-circuit the process and make the public schools come to you in a way, bring their level up to what their competition is. Well, see, here we – I guess we've been working on this long because our school board is elected by the members of the district, you know, the voters in the district. And their yeah. sole employee is the school superintendent. Now, we had a couple of really bad school superintendents, and we forced the issue so much so that we finally have a school superintendent who is a gem. He's new to the not – new, not new, but he ran down uh, – I think it was uh, Palm Beach. He was in charge of Palm Beach, mm-hmm. Florida, and he's now with us. Mm-hmm. He, in just a few months he has been here, has made tremendous strides in changing the shape of the school district and improving the students coming out and getting higher grades and raising us up in, in, in quality of education. So this is an issue that we've been working on. And Curtis will tell you, I keep on telling my listeners and the members of our Tea Party, that all issues are local issues. If you look at it, who you elect to your school board, even dog catcher, how it affects your mm-hmm. local community. And then these people advance to the state and federal level. You know, the only person I yes, know and, that's and ever that's been actually, going straight to the top is Donald Trump, having never held an office before in his life. That's the only person. Mm-hmm. But that's rare. Eisenhower. <laughs> Eisenhower did that too. He didn't. He was that was his only well, elected office. That's I but, know. Him. I'm meaning currently, <laughs> currently. Okay. Okay. Yes. <laughs> but the and you have the right idea. I really like that. I applaud you for doing it. Um, now, just hopefully they're replicating it in every other local district or county in South Carolina, and then you got to start working on the states that are. A little tougher nuts to crack, like Maryland or Delaware. So, I, I mean, that that to me is the place that. I mean, don't don't forget your focus on other issues, but that's that's one goal that any good Tea Party successor group should have, or as I call it, Tea Party 3.0, because we had Tea Party 1.0 back in 1773, so. <laughs> The tea, the tea Party, I write about Tea Party 2.0, so now we're going to work on 3.0, the beta. So that's – you're working on the 3.0 beta, and I love it. <laughs> you know, it's funny because uh, I don't know if you ever watch NCIS, but uh, Gibbs has the neighbor's kid over doing his homework, and the kid asked why the people in the Tea Party, the original Tea Party – didn't just steal the tea and sell it on the black market. <laughs> so you mentioned that it just rem- reminded me <laughs> of mm. the original tea party. Uh, it was a good question. <laughs> good question. That is kind of a good question, but I'm not sure. Uh, I'm not sure they were trying for political favors here. They were. They were actually trying for liberty. They weren't trying to enrich themselves here. <laughs> They were they were well, actually, trying to get their get their mitts into the honey pot. 
Well, had the tea made it off the boat, the tax stamps on that tea would have to be paid. So if you had the black market tea in your home, don't forget you had soldiers quartered in your home. If they see That's that true. Tea, Third Amendment. Yeah. So, you know, there is a reason why they decided let's not keep this and sell it on the black market, even though we could use the money and the funds to uh, support and supply the revolution. (laughs) Now, if there were video back then, it would have made a heck of an image having tea-colored water, too. So, (laughs) unfortunately, they didn't have video back then, or maybe that is fortunate. I don't know. (laughs) Could you imagine that revolution televised? No, we we were talking about, you know, people are getting upset with Trump not getting things done fast enough. But if you notice that every time he tries to do something positive to move forward, to keep one of his promises, such as on immigration and the border wall, he gets thrown court case after court case. But he's changing also the construction or the composition of the federal court. Yeah, he's, he's getting his judges that in. more his, his the judges he's been appointing left and right that have been going sailing through the Senate. No, no left. And the media, <laughs> the media, <laughs> unseating the left for the right. Uh, yes. uh But the media is just they. They're not even talking about it. They're not even talking about these judge appointments. So you know the public. No. Blithely unaware, but he's starting to change the fabric of America. And that's good. I mean that that it's not it's nice to have a uh, a little push from the top as opposed to just having the bottom do it all the time. That that's kind of nice. <laughs> I feel like I'm supported slightly. I mean, I, I'm not going to lie to you. Say, I, I, I'm really happy that everything Donald Trump has done. But, and, and you know, I was, I was a, I was a never Trump. I, I'll freely admit it now. I said, either one of three things is going to happen. Either we're going to have Hillary as president, and she'll govern exactly what I feared she would. We'll have Donald Trump as president, and he'll, he'll govern exactly as I fear he will. Or I'll be com- he'll have Trump and president, and I'll be completely wrong. It'll be a great president. So, look like looks like we're doing going for door number three here. So, which is good. <laughs> I'm I'm very happy about that. I mean, my my job <laughs> is you know my employers are very happy about it because now I'm working for them. So, you know that's that's what's happened, but it's all gone under the radar because the media won't report on it. Ninety-six percent well, negative coverage of them, yeah. but you have to admit the guy's well, resilient. Oh well, yeah. he has to be. I mean, how many how many regular people would take all this abuse? No, and in the past, you watched someone come into the presidential office, and their hair would be their natural color. By the time they got out there, they would have a head of gray hair. And President Obama mm-hmm. is a 100% example of that, how great yes, he got yes. so fast. But instead, we had Pastor Paula White on because he seems, to, he seems to get younger and younger because he thrives on all this adversity they send at him. And he says, throw it at me because I'm going to find a way to overcome and get the job done. 
which is precisely what he has been doing with the appointments of these judges, with the cutting back on regulatory agencies and on regulations. Oh, yes. That's, on that's been our the military. best thing he's done. I'm and sorry? He's cutting back. He, he's cutting. He's doing what he promised to do. And now he's winning over those never-Trumpers. And I was starting to say that one of the things I observed when the Tea Party first rose up, we had a lot of people that were originally Democrats and then became members yeah. of the Tea Party. And I have a lot of friends yes. of ours that I always ask them, when was your epiphany? It's when the Tea Party showed me what was going on, what was wrong with the, the country. Now exactly. I'm thinking those same people that may have joined the Tea Party back in 2009, 2010 – are now part of that walk away crowd. They're, they've become away. Well, they may have already walked away, or, or if they're anything like where, the area where I live, they were Democrats in name only. They're Democrats because their their daddy was a Democrat, and they can't stomach the thought of changing over to Republican. But when they get in the privacy privacy of the voting booth, they vote Republican, and that's where we got. A, and then this is a big percentage of the Tea Party was disaffected Democrats. They did not like what Obama was going to do. They were they were worried about it, and they came back with Trump because they were they saw what Obama did and said we didn't we don't care for this jobless recovery. We need we need somebody to shake up things and you know drain the swamp and all that. That's where he got that's where he got a lot of his support that's why hillary's firewall collapsed on her because she was counting on those people that were tea party people that that were disaffected democrats to come back to the democrat party because their union told them so or whatever but no they decided to vote for donald trump and i'm sure that somewhere in the bowels of hillary clinton's campaign they had a collective heart attack when they saw Pennsylvania and Wisconsin, Michigan all go to Trump because they they couldn't fathom it. It was it was just something they could not contemplate. Well, you know, there's and also it's funny a, because, a fact. I'm I'm sorry. I was just no, going to say that say, there's I, something. <laughs> Finish up. Go ahead. I was going to say. I remember. I got. I don't even remember where it was election night 2016, but I, I had to go someplace and I came home. So I come home when I turn on the computer and I'm looking up, oh, what are all the election results are doing? And I look up the New York Times and they had that little dial that had the percentage likelihood of whoever would win. And it's pointing at 95% Trump. And I'm like, holy. I said, I said something you can't see in the radio. <laughs> but, what the heck? You know, I was I was floored. I mean, I I believe the conventional wisdom. Although I was kind of thinking if there was a Bradley effect, Trump might pull it off. Well, there must have been a Bradley effect. So they, those people that were in the Democrat Party and got became Tea Party people. They they stayed the course and went for Donald Trump. They said, okay, we're going to try this because Hillary Clinton's more of what we didn't want with Obama, so we'll go with Trump, and that's what they did. Well, I was going to say there's also a backlash uh, for people that where the Tea Party did 
work hard to help get them elected, such as I'm thinking of Massachusetts' Scott Brown. And it was all yes. on, let's get Scott Brown in there so he will stop. Mr. Obozo. 41. Yeah, and uh, there was money bombs going out left and right, of course, Twitter and other social networks. And I remember sending out a bunch of them you know, just to help support. But he had people across the nation supporting him. And when he yes. did that one vote that allowed Obamacare to advance, he would never hold elected office again. And I think that's and that, what was also helped push Paul Ryan out and several other people got pushed out because Marco of Rubio. their stance they took. The gang of eight. That's what, that's what sunk and, Marco Rubio's presidential campaign. He exactly. voted – he was in the gang of eight. Exactly, along with John McCain. And now we've got two well, people running against Lindsey Graham here in South Carolina because people don't forget – even though he sounds conservative at this moment in time, that is a mm-hmm. long memory in the voters. It's not as if you know they think that, oh, well, let's run again next year and the voters won't remember what we did in the last term. That's not exactly true. You know, people do oh, remember. No. And, and if they don't remember, there's there's people that will remind them, and that's, that's the job of the local uh, tea parties and, you know, keep, the, keep things – Politicians accountable. Don't let them. Don't let them get complacent. I have a, or I had now because I've moved here to Delaware. I had a representative Republican, and he said when he first got elected in 2010, part of the Tea Party wave, one of the very few in Maryland, that he was going to only run for 12 years. He was only going to serve 12 years. Well, this would be this next election would be his 11th and 12th year. So. If he wins, which he probably will, it's a pretty conservative area. But I, I'm, you know, I'll be watching from my side of the border here. I'll be holding him to account. Said you said 12 years. So if he decides to run in 2022, he's going to get near full. I said no, you said 12 years. And that's, I mean, that's you need the accountability. I mean, yes, you might agree with your uh, congressman 80 percent of the time, but he's got to hear about that other 20 percent. I mean, that's. He's your congressperson too, and I mean we have, of course, again I'm referring across the border because in Maryland, but there are a number of people that will troll his his site. And I call it the traveling roadshow because they would be the 15 or 20 people that would go there and object to everything he did at the town hall meetings. There, that's, you know, there's accountability from the left now. So there should be accountability from the right too. Don't let your don't let your voice get drowned out because the left seems to be ascendant in this country because that's the perception the media wants to create. I, I'm trying to create the opposite perception here. There, it's it's the <clears throat> the silent majority can't be silent anymore. That's basically the long and the short of it. Exactly, exactly. Which is exactly why Mark Sanford's no longer in Congress. You know, you even mention his name at one of our Tea Party meetings, and you'll hear groans mm-hmm. right across the board. You know, you because we got a strong military community here, and hey, listen, he was AWOL. He was AWOL with his Definitely. girlfriend down in Argentina, and then with his stance on Never Trump, he, when he tried his presidential run, 
unfortunately, he shot himself in the foot when he did not support Katie Arrington when she primaried him out. And he wrote an open op-ed against her, which only helped her to lose against the Democrat Joe Cunningham, or as I call it, Beer Can Joe. Um, You heard about him trying to bring beer onto the floor of the uh, Congress while in session. That didn't work out too well. (laughs) <laughs> he's got the nickname I, I, wonder if, I wonder if he's pals with Elizabeth Warren, you know. <laughs> Elizabeth's been known to knock over a beer here and there, so. <laughs> yeah. I but, think know, they got the, a the debate coming up soon. Get. Yeah, the, the voters don't forget, though. And right now we've got a strong field that's in the Republican side. We'll see who primaries out and who will run against Bierke and Joe. And I think we'll be able to take the seat back, the seat that we held for decades. But the Tea Party is still yeah. out there. They just are called something else. Yeah, and that's that's the advantage of having a state like yours where I'm sitting in Delaware, and I'm kind of learning the ropes here. But Delaware has a very weak Republican Party that they're – they're in, they're the minority party and they act like it, which is really unfortunate because I think that by and large the the people of Delaware would agree with most of the Republican philosophy, but the state of Delaware is run by Wilmington and Newcastle County, which is a very urban area. It's not it's not far from Philadelphia, and it has a lot of the same problems as Philadelphia. So that's that's the landscape. That's the state of play here. In Maryland, very similar, where the eastern shore of Maryland is a conservative area, and that's where I'm. That's where I. When I started writing the book, I was there, and that's why the introduction is the way it was. But that's that's the only well, one of the two more conservative, two or three more conservative areas in Del- in Maryland, but it has to compete with Baltimore and. The D.C. metro area, which is just like full of government employees, and I think – I can't even remember what Trump's percentage in Prince George's County was, but it's a – Prince George's County is a majority-minority county. It is on the D.C. border, and I think he was in single digits. Mm. So that's that's what – you know, you think of yeah, you're South Carolina, you're in very good shape. You have a very amenable electorate. Other states aren't as lucky. You know, your Maryland, your Californias, your your Illinois. There, there's a lot of states where there are very solid pockets of Trump voters and Tea Partiers, but unfortunately, they're just drowned out by the big cities and urban areas. And that's going to circle back here. That's where they needs to be a tireless effort, especially in those bigger cities, to start taking over something small like your school ward. <laughs> try try to work work into the educational system and try to reform those big cities from within, starting with the youth. That's that's. That's kind of where I wanted to go with the conclusion of the book. It looks like uh, that's the direction that we are going in, and thankfully it's the right direction. 
<laughs> so oh, Scott, I'm, I'm all for the right your, direction. <laughs> I'm sorry. People can find your book. People, where can people find your book, The Rise and Fall of the Tea Party? Well, there is a website called riseandfalloftheteaparty.com that you can find it there. Or you can just go to Amazon and look for – just type in Rise and Fall of the Tea Party, and it'll come up. And I happened to catch the uh, end of Paula before me, and she was talking about reviewing the book. And if you are, you know, if you're happy with what I said and uh, you're inclined to purchase the book, I would really appreciate more reviews on the book because that's how, you know, I think that's how the word gets out. Spread the word. I mean, I I don't have a marketing marketing department. I have the marketing department. So, I mean, that's this was a labor of love for me to to try and straighten out this nation. And I saw the, you know, I saw what the issues were coming into 2016, and I was really worried about Hillary getting in. I didn't, I'm glad she didn't, but it was just a precautionary tale that I started writing and ended up being very uh, informative for myself as doing the research and hopefully to the readers doing the reading. So, yeah, risingfalltheteaparty.com or Facebook slash. Rise and fall. Let me look just to make sure here. I'm getting – I almost sometimes I get my stuff mixed up. Well, <laughs> uh, Michael, I want to thank you for joining us because I got my next guest up in the bullpen already. But uh, I, I enjoyed talking to you about that, and there is hope for America. There is hope. God oh, there bless is. You. And, uh, take care, Michael. Uh, yeah, take care. <laughs> All, right. All right. Michael Schwartz, find him at Rise and Fall Tea Party. It's a great book to read. And we've got with us, returning to the show, who I haven't had back on in quite a long time, my bad, John Horvat II. How are you doing today, John? Great. Great to be on the show. Hope you had a good Thanksgiving. We had a very pleasant one. Very pleasant. Uh, stuck to the gills, and we're going to go back for seconds for more turkey <laughs> and all the fixings later on tonight. Yeah, that's um, great. That's the great. You've got a great website, returntoorder.org, uh, based also on your book that you wrote, Return to Order, um, which talks about how to bring back our faith and help restore America to what our founders intended it to be. And you brought a very interesting issue in front of me that I was not particularly aware of. I knew that the kids today uh, are not as happy as they would have been in my generation or your generation, and I know there's a lot of social pressures on them, on these kids that were not present when we were growing up, but I didn't realize how bad and to what extent it's become. Right. I mean, I looked I, I looked at the statistics, and I you know, said, use suicide triples, and you know, it, was, it was showing a significant increase. And then I looked at the the age range, and it said from 10 to 24. I said, wait a minute, 10 is not youth, that's children. Children are committing suicide, and I was just shocked. And so I, I did some research and looked into it, and I was pretty, uh, you know, it's pretty sobering what you find. And absolutely. And the worst part is, is that we're finding that our children are under assault, not just physically, but mentally under assault daily um, by people trying to create social engineering and using kids to do it. Suddenly it's okay to take a, a 
newborn infant and decide at that at its birth, it's not the biological boy mm-hmm. or girl. It's what right. the parent intends that child be. to be. And we've got yeah. the perfect case of that boy down in Texas. Right, yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, those are the kind of situations where, you know, the person, a, a young child is supposed to, at, at that age, be exploring and finding out who he is and, you know, what he wants to be, but not what he is. <laughs> what he is, he is, you know. So he, he that's, uh, that's, that's the tragedy of it all. He's being put in the midst of this whole culture that is, a culture of uncertainty and uh, relativism and uh, the destruction of innocence. And the worst part is, is it's not being done by just the parents. It's by right. outside influences that you think should be nurturing the child, such as teachers in the classrooms, or they have these transgender uh, storytelling hour by people mm-hmm. that work oh, in yeah, the yeah, adult yeah, the... entertainment industry. I mean, come on. Right, yeah. Yeah, really? the, the drag screen story hours and the, the public libraries. I mean, that is just—I just don't understand it. I think it's just uh, an outrage, <laughs> absolutely. And you're also finding that because of laws that are p- placed um, on the books about these same-sex bathrooms, you're finding now also uh, classical Christian schools are closing down schools that. Mm-hmm. Can- teach the children morally correct are closing because they're being forced to -hmm. have same-sex bathrooms, which violates their faith. Yeah, for sure. I mean, that is it. It is very aggressive. We don't, we don't have, uh, you know, we who were born in a a times, earlier times, I'm a boomer, um, you know, we just can't really fathom it because uh, it's just so far away from what we knew. I think, yes. Well, what, what are some of the other factors you find influencing these children and that are driving them to go to go the route of suicide? Well, I mean, one of the things you'll really find a lot of is, is uh, the lack of a stable family. Uh, when, uh, when one of the parents is gone, when there's a divorce in the family, when there are traumatic situations inside the family, that definitely presupposes them to do that because – Children tend to blame themselves for that for those things, and uh, they actually have no real blame in it. But they are they do tend to blame themselves, and then they they tend to uh, then they will consider suicide. So the best, the absolute best uh, prevention for suicide of a young child is the family itself. The family is the institution. I mean, the structure that is just so made for the child that it's. It just, uh, you can't get better than that. It's the absolute uh, best possible solution. But when it's broken, it definitely causes those problems. Now, we also see um, not as many people are actually attending church or going Mm -hmm. to any sort of a Bible study or anything like that. Is that also a factor, the loss of faith in our lives? Oh, definitely. I definitely think, you know, that God plays a very, very important role in the lives of everyone. Uh, we are made for God. I mean, it's not as if we're forcing something upon uh, upon the child, upon others. Uh, God, God is our creator, and we are we are most na- we are most happy when we naturally tend toward Him. And for the child, I think it's especially important because then you um, you um, the child can confide in God. 
if you teach the child to confide in God, to pray to God, to have a, a prayer life, you know, that kind of thing, it's just one more uh, suit of armor, let's say, to put on, on the child for uh, to, to fight off these very strong cultural influences that are out there. And we're also sure. seeing it where uh, a child will even go to school to pray over their lunch, and they're chastised by the lunchroom attendant or by a, a teacher monitor or something like that for praying over their meal. Uh, it, it's, it's not a separation of church and state. It's never been in the Constitution. In fact, the Constitution right. says government cannot prohibit the free expression thereof. We've got to be able to get that message out a lot stronger. I'm sorry, Chris. I didn't mean to cut you off. Go ahead. <laughs> Go ahead. Yeah, I, I was just wondering if you thought perhaps um, what's going on in the political world is impacting these children. I mean, when I was growing up, I never heard this much about a president and, and in a negative way, you know. And then right. there's the um, then you got the, um, the climate. climate change people yeah, 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 yeah. always saying that the the world's coming to an end in 12 years if we don't do anything about climate change. How is that impacting these kids? Yeah, I think you got a very good point because uh, those kind of things uh, we can see through them. A lot of you know the adults have a, an easier time seeing through them, but children believe what they're told. And when they when these catastrophes are put before them, they believe it. And and so um, you know all the people, all the statistics, and all the psychologists say that you know the, the cause of a lot of this child suicide is anxiety. And anxiety definitely is caused by those climate scares and those crises and, and catastrophes that are that are that are put upon these children. So that is a is a big factor. Uh, it shouldn't be, but it is. Well, we have has to be something that we could do for these kids that is not being done. Uh, we're talking about it. We're at least we're getting the message out there to make more people aware of them. But is there any sort of a support group out there for parents that if the kid is under a lot of stress, they can go to a support group of some sort and help ease the child's fears? Yeah, I've, you know, there definitely are things like that. There are a lot of hotlines and suicide hotlines. I don't have a listing right in front of me, but I'm sure you can, you can actually um, you know, go online and find those things. But um, you know, one of the, one of the things I think is very important for the child before he gets to that point, you know, that's where you really need to work. And uh, you know, children, if you uh, children need to be children, and so I think a lot of times uh, what leads to this anxiety and problems of not being able to adjust is that uh, many times children are overprotected by their parents, and other times they're underprotected. You know, they the children need a certain amount of protection so that they can, you know, play a certain amount of risk involved in their lives so they can take up on small problems so that later on they'll be able to deal with big problems. And so they need a certain protection of their parents to allow that, to give them the cover to do those kind of things. And that helps them ad adjust to problems. But on the other side, if they're overprotected and the, and the parents never let them suffer or have any type of, uh, you know, trauma in their lives, when the trauma really does come, and it will come, it comes to everyone, then they will not be able to to deal with it, and they have anxiety, and that also can lead to to the suicide and those kind of thoughts, those anxiety. And then it leads to those safe zones, or don't wave the American flag. It's it's 
triggering me. Uh, don't right, wear that yeah. Christian cross. It's triggering me. Uh, right, because when you have anxiety, it, you you don't want to try new things. You don't want to you don't want to get outside of that comfort or safety zone. So you you just stay to your routines and you don't. Uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. That triggering is is definitely a part of that anxiety. You've got it. Now I'm also curious how much of this is also due to the fact that now we're not having multiple children. Most families have maybe one. You know, in order right, for our I, nation yeah. to survive, it should be three children per household, a minimum, in order to keep yeah. our society going. Instead, we see single parents or just one child, and they have no siblings to interact with. Yeah, oh, that's a very good point. I, I, others have brought it up. You know, it's, it is very tragic because um, all those layers of relatives, uh, they, are, they provide means of, of dealing with problems, uh, getting rid of anxieties, confiding in others. So, yes, it's, the more you have of that, the better. When you have uncles and aunts and cousins and uh, nieces and nephews and all these types of things, I mean, it just uh, it, it it is like a security blanket for the for the child. Um, I, I you know the the Chinese they have the one child policy. And when you think about it, just think about it. That means the child will have no uncles or aunts, no cousins, no nephews or nieces. It will only be parent child relationship. All those other relationships will not exist when you have one child a one child policy. Well, we're also a very mobile society. You know, mm-hmm. you may have a sibling living in California, another one down right. in Florida, and we're spaced out. And we have that in my family, where right. my mother, who's still alive, is down in the Virgin Islands. My sister is upstate New York. My two brothers are all the way out in Long Island in New York. I'm down in South Carolina. We don't right. have those times where we gather together, whether it's for birthdays, anniversaries, holidays. We don't come back together as a single unit. It, are we seeing this? Is this another cause of child anxiety that they don't have any sort of a nuclear family to hold on to? Yeah, nuclear or extended for that fa- that matter. Yeah, it's it is tragic that we live in that kind of society where you know, everybody's everywhere and 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 travels everywhere, not just in one place, but moves several times during the course of the life. Uh, the more stability that you can provide for the child, the better. And you know, the more socially you can, you, you're involved in the family, the parish, the community, the state, or any type of, of community, any type of community, it is just one more layer of security for the child, and that really helps them to you know, deal with uh, these problems. If it's just me against the world, it can be pretty daunting, even for an adult. Now, how much of mass media news is also affecting this? Because you hear about school shootings, you hear about this disaster, that disaster. How much is that 24-hour, seven days a week bombardment of news affect the child also without someone there to explain exactly what's going on? Right, right. You know, we uh, just a sort of side point. We, you know, we say how, we're so concerned about the child in in the schools and the, in the mass shootings, but far more children are 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 killed by suicide than they child than school shootings. It's it's almost minimal. You know, maybe two per three percent, whereas the child is much much more. You know, so the the dangers of of the school, the the, the home sometimes is much more dangerous than the school. 
but definitely those factors are there. Um, there's a lot of stuff on the Internet that uh, can uh, create anxiety and even promote suicide. There's one program called 13 Reasons that was um, uh, just, oh, I think it was on Netflix. And uh, it's, it's, well, it's, a, it's a, just a kind of a documentary, fictional doc documentary about uh, 13 Reasons to Commit Suicide. And when that that program was on, it uh, right afterwards there was a spike in suicide. So it's it's you know it's out there those kind of things, those morbid uh, regions of the internet, and of our news gathering and uh, um, mechanisms, and they definitely favor this this tragic tr trend. Well, we saw the breakup of the family, especially with the new social policies under the Johnson administration in the '60s. Uh, mm -hmm. We saw then the rise of video games in the late 70s to the point where now people are completely addicted to some of these video games, which are very violent and very graphic. Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. we've been bombarded with technology, and these have also caused the change in the type of entertainment we watch, whether it's through something like HBO or Netflix or TV or whatever, or even videos mm -hmm. that you watch on your smart device. We've seen a change where we didn't have these type of movies and things and games when we were growing up, but now it's around them all the time. Does right, this, it's, as you said, with that one TV show, you know, is that really that tremendous an effect? Yeah, I mean, it's all one click away. Uh, you know, the all the violent stuff, the pornographic things. I mean, those kind of things are. Just uh, instant. It's in their pocket. It's in their hand at any time. And and uh, definitely these things. Uh, I mean, it used to be very difficult to get those things, and it used to take time to get those things. Now it's instant and it's gratifying, and it's and it's you know it's it's done just to, and many times without you know parental, of course, many times without parental parental guidance or surveillance. Um, you know, I like to point out that sometimes you know parents don't watch what their children are. Are showing on their are watching on their on their computers, and many times their policies are more liberal than Starbucks because Starbucks at least blocks some of the a lot of these pornographic and 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 and, uh, and violent sites. So, you know, we should have no illusions that these things are are, are out there. They're violent. They're they're they 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 can lead to these things like uh, anxiety and and suicide. Well, you know, you mentioned the pornography because a lot of it is aimed at kids and mm -hmm. and involved children. And we're mm -hmm. finding it more and more in our society than we've ever seen in any other time in history. And right. Going after children as young as five or even younger than that, it, it's, it, yeah. it, it <laughs> changes the development of that child. Right. Yeah, 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 exactly that. I mean, the children grow up faster, so to speak. It used to be, I mean, I was doing some research, and they were saying, well, they they found instances of five-year-olds committing suicide, and they said, uh, no, that's not possible. They don't have an idea. They don't have the rational framework to even contemplate it, but they do, and they are. <laughs> and that's the, that's the scary thing about it. Well, is it also the availability of things like opioids that it makes it easier for them to do it? Well, no, because the, for younger people, for children, you'd be surprised it's not guns. Usually it isn't guns. 
it's suffocation or strangulation, you know, hanging themselves or things like that. It's not the uh, not the really violent stuff. I was uh, or you know taking to taking things. The for the young young children, it's usually those things which are pretty available to everyone. Now I had a, a pastor over my house one day, and he was in charge of the youth ministry, and he told me something that was really really abnormal. I thought at the time. But after doing this show for a number of years, I'm finding it's more and more normal. The inability for kids to interact with their fellow human being. They're spending so much time on their smart devices and buried in these video games. They no longer know how to interact with other people to the point where they cannot look someone directly in their in the eyes or they right, cannot yeah. even shake hands, have no mm-hmm. idea how to dress and go for a job interview um, we have kids now buried in the technology, but no longer part of the human race. Right. Yeah. Definitely, that's out there, and it's very. Uh, yeah. You see it all all the time. Um, you know, those are very important. I mean, we are social beings, and we need to we need to interact. It's part of our our, our very nature, and uh, this takes it away. I mean, they the they have a phone, but they rarely use it to talk. It's all just the interaction with the actual machine itself. So, yeah, it's, it's Michael, definitely horrible. Yes. Michael, do you think, um, as far as social media is concerned, the fact that a lot of these young people, they base their, um, um, I would say, their self-worth on mm-hmm. how many um, likes, likes they get. And <laughs> yeah. if they don't get that many likes and their friends get all these likes, yeah, they don't yeah. feel like you know anybody. They don't feel loved. You think right, that can yeah. contribute to their um, depression? Yeah, exactly. And especially since the social media and, and the internet are very are very rapid and quick uh, interaction. You know, if you don't get back within a couple uh, a couple minutes or you know a couple, at least an hour, you know, then you get you fall into depression. It's very very quick and very you know you they want to see self they want to see validation immediately. So when you on a Facebook post or on a, on a text message, you know that back and forth immediate validation is out there, and uh, it 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 changes it rewires the mind it changes the mind. They the, the neurologists say you know that you you come to the dopamine and the, all the the chemical reactions that happen in the mind it 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 has a, a drug like effect on the person. So yeah, it, it is uh, it, it can cause that in a child and uh, in an adult too. And it, 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 is, it is a very frightening subject to uh, to deal with. But, you know, mm-hmm. what strategies do parents have or what strategies should we as a member of the community start to implement to prevent these suicides? Well, I mean, the strategy that parents have, have to do is, is, is uh, I think, is first of all, stay together, be, you know, t- t- be, uh, be parents. Don't you, They need that certainty. They need that solidity. And, Security, the family is the the you know the best possible way and to try to to uh, keep the family together. Um, let children be children. You know, let them play, let them fight, let them you know do do some risky activities you know within their their things so they're not overprotected. Uh, give them certainties. Uh, I would even go so far as to say let them fight them for those certainties as early as as possible. You know, even 
I know a lot of people are involved in uh, in activism or uh, pro-life activism, and they involve their children. I mean, these these are kind of things that that um, solidify the child already from a very young age to say that there is right and wrong, there is truth and error, and it doesn't change with the with the, the day or the night or the hour or the or the app. It's 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 for real, and so. The more a, a family can be a family and a children can be children, uh, go for it. And, and the more that the family can, uh, the, the, the parents can interact with others of, of similar mind and, uh, and uh, form, form networks that give security to children, that's also, you know, I, I think it's invaluable. You know, I saw last night an interesting program on TV where some of the parents are actually now restricting the number of hours and times in which their kids can get on the computer or the smartphone or whatever smart device they're they're interacting at on, yeah. um, would that be another manner in which people can help the child develop more socially? Oh yeah, absolutely. And they have a lot of these programs, and a lot of Christian groups and others have developed just amazing programs that are. I, I mean, I find just uh, very. Uh, uh, very touching that they would do this. You know, they have programs that will mit- limit the hours. They have filters that will take out pornography, violence, um, you know, all sorts of uh, anything you put on there. You know, and uh, they will, you know, do just uh, they'll allow you to see what's going on. So you know, you can you can confront or you can at least warn and 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 uh, you know be uh, see what they're doing. So yeah, I mean, these things are are very. Um, are very good. I mean, I think they're they're very helpful, and they will they they help the parents and they help the children. And they, I think, in the final analysis, they will thank you for it if you do it. We need to have more teachers, I think, also involved to look for signs of suicide in a child, whether or not mm-hmm. they're they're acting, you know, as as a loner, or they have mm-hmm. a. Uh, I'm, I'm sorry, my having some brain parts here. Um, yeah, behavioral no, problems, mm-hmm. uh, certain signs that teachers should need to be trained to look for, I think, also. We should be asking mm-hmm. our school boards, what are you doing to help prevent the rise of suicide in children as young as five? And that is scary when a yeah, child as is. young as five would contemplate something like that. And I've mentioned several times during the show, the closer we get to the holiday season, the more we're going to see the rise in the number of suicides. And if it's yeah, a, yeah. a child as young as five in a dysfunctional home, that's a very yeah. scary thought. Right, exactly. And they they just they, they need that. They need to they the, the the teachers are on the front lines in that in that particular case. And uh, yeah, they they need to look look out for those kind of things because they are out there. You you really hit it. And to recommend finding their path back to God. Yes, oh, I think so. I, 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 I can't. I don't think you can really take that take that out of the equation um, because uh, it it adds so much. You know, if you you yeah, it's so much meaning and purpose to life, and that is one thing that uh, modern society does. It just says there is no meaning and purpose to life. The only reason for existence is gratification, having fun, doing what you what you want to do, and once you enter into the idea of God. Then things change. You exist for the greater glory of God, for the, to know, love, and serve Him, and you know they, these kind of things um, ch- change the mind of the person, change the way the behavior, and and uh, allows the person to live for something more than himself, and uh, and 
and to act in society for the love of God for for his, uh, to help his neighbor and and that is really uh, a way to give meaning and purpose to life and to change uh, the mentality of the child so that he will find that uh, he doesn't need to have those those horrible thoughts. Well, there's a huge amen to that one. Uh, people can find you. You write a lot in the Wall Street Journal, the Christian Post, American Thinker. You're up on The Blaze. You've been on Fox News, and we love the Washington Times. But people can find you at returntoorder.org. And I, you right. have an email list, so people can sign up there if you want to get some of your notifications because you do have some interesting articles up on Return to Order, Mm -hmm. some interesting things. And you are up there about what's going on with Christian persecution and all Mm -hmm. these issues dealing with faith and its attack and the public's attack on our faith. Right, yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, you can go there to returntoorder.org, and there's just a little box on the side if you want to sign up for the newsletter. That'd be great. The more, the better. Well, just... John, thank you for everything you do, and thank you for bringing this issue to us because uh, it was mm-hmm. something I'm, I was completely unaware of, and we're going to get the word out, that's for sure. Yeah, and as the last speed, last guest said, there is hope for America. It's not all like that, but there is that this, this problem is definitely there, and we need to look at it. Well, thank you, John. God bless for the hard Take work care. you do. All right. God bless. All right. Uh, John Horvath, check him out at Return to Order. Dot org, And we've got our last victim finally in the studio. <laughs> Let's welcome uh, Robert C. Hastings. He is the founder and director of Ghost22, ghost-22.com. Put a dash in the middle like the same way you do for Southern Sense. But just put that hyphen in the middle. And uh, you're a nonprofit organization that is dedicated to preventing suicide on active service members as well as veterans. I said veterans earlier, but you do also for active members as well as veterans. Welcome, Robert. Yes, ma'am. Yes, and the National Guard as well. That's a service. Yeah. That's yes, so service. we do. Uh, we- yeah, I'm actually still in the National Guard. So. Uh, well, you know... It's not just the Navy and the Marines. <laughs> We've got yeah, exactly. Oh, I started out in the Navy, and then I went to the National Guard. But um, the uh, but uh, I bring the emphasis on the uh, National Guard and reservists because the uh, that that number is actually I say you know the standard is twenty two, but the uh, actual number is more like thirty one. Whenever you take in consideration the uh, the uh, the reservists in the National Guard. And that number 22 is how many per day commit suicide? Yeah, that's that's the old older number. The actual number as of the of the most recent date is 31. Yeah. Now, we had started off our show with a dedication to two uh army uh, NCOs that were killed in Afghanistan, and I had already put the dedication up when you sent me the email late yesterday. Um, you wanted right. to make a special dedication, and I am not even going to try to pronounce her last name, so I'll let you tell us about her and why you asked and what the situation is. It's Deborah Texera, and uh, she was a Air Force reservist, and uh, she was deployed to to Iraq during the height of the war in 2003 to 2004. 
and uh, she was a uh, internal in, intel journalist our journeyman so she was gathering the data as the data was coming off the battlefield so and uh over the time that that deployment has taken a toll on her to where she uh took her life in april of this this year that's so that's one, of the, that's one of the reasons that uh that's one of the main reasons that uh I started Ghost 22 because uh, her sister was struggling with the uh, trying to get services to do the VA and uh, was running into dead ends. And, and so I, I assisted with uh, from Cuba. I was helping her make, you know, decisions and information that she needed to get her sister taken care of in a proper way. Now, on your website, ghost-22.com, you have a hotline, yes. and I'm going to read the number over the air, but they can go to your website and see the phone number there, which is 1-800-273-8255. Once again, 1-800-273-8255. This is a 24-7 hotline for suicide prevention. Uh, who staffs yes. this? This is, this is actually the... Uh, through the VA, it's the VA staffing. We just put that link on ours. So uh, if any veteran comes to it, and they don't have to be, you know, a veteran, they can be on active duty and still call that number as well. Well, there is a stigmatism with people that serve about reporting problems where they may feel suicidal. They seem to feel that if they do report it, they won't get that promotion. They won't get that duty station. Uh, they may be sent off somewhere where they don't want to be, or they just may be fluffed off and saying, oh, well, you know, deal with it. Well, I, uh, whenever I got back, I've been going to seek help since I've been back, and I probably should have been seeking help before I before I went on the last deployment as well. The uh and it's not a sign of weakness. I mean, it's a sign of strength whenever you can ask for help and uh you know, you reach out to somebody else to help you. Now what are some so, of these causes? Is it just the deployment or is it trying to get back into, you know, civilian society? Is it homelessness? Is there any one specific cause for a rise in well, suicide? A lot of it is transitional, and uh, it's like whenever they're transitioning from active duty, and then or losing a job, or or losing a spouse. You know, some of our and some of our biggest numbers right now are the uh, Vietnam veterans and the Korean veterans because they're losing their spouses, and so you know they're being left in a transitional phase to adapt, and it's uh, it's a hard stress to deal with. And I would assume also divorce is a big cause, too. Yes, ma'am. Robert. Go ahead, Curtis. Matter of fact, my my co-host is a Navy veteran, so go ahead, Curtis. Right. Yeah, the Navy reported um, 68 active duty deaths last year. This year, oddly enough, there was, I think there were four deaths on the same ship. The USS yes, exactly. um, George Herbert Bush, um, 
and two were on the same day. I'm not sure what ever came of the investigation into that, but I was just curious, you know, is it because maybe, you know, our youth today aren't used to dealing with stress because they've been so pampered when they were young, even throughout school? I I believe that uh, has a little bit to do with it. And, uh, you know, I started out in the Navy in 1987. And I, I was on the USS Forrestal. I went to Desert. I went to Ernest Will. I went to, you know, I met Cruz, and then I did Desert Storm. So, you know, today it's totally different than yesterday when, you know, probably when you served as well. The, uh, and, you know, you get a, a, a Navy chief that was a former Marine in his service. He comes to your shop, and he's like, you know, suck it up and drive on and that's what we did then and now you tell somebody to suck it up and they uh fall you know, apart they, exactly and and, uh, and I, I got soldiers that that you know on this last deployment some of them were hard as stone and then some of them some of them uh as soon as they stepped foot on the island they kind of crumbled and it's uh, i don't understand how uh the transitional you know and you try to treat all your soldiers the same, and but then some of them can't can't handle the pressure, you know. Whenever and this is it's not a great deal of pressure, you know. Well, is there any sort of a psychological test before they go into the military to see what their their fortitude is? There is. It's and, not very thorough. It's not it, very exactly. Thorough. Exactly, and and you know. You know, and and the more like advanced the schooling is, the more in depth the the screening is. So, if somebody's going to go be uh, an EOD guy, his his screening is going to be more in depth than somebody that's going to be an aircraft engine mechanic. <laughs> so, well, I, I think if he's going to be handling that bomb, I want someone with steady hands and a steady mind. That's for sure. But you know, <laughs> exactly, exactly. You had mentioned, you know, deployments and everything. Um, you've got deployments that are cakewalks, and then you have deployments that you're walking literally through hell. Uh, how much of this also, taking that battlefield back home, affects well, the suicide rate? With with that, it's, it's not that the veteran is afraid of dying because they're not. I mean, most of them go on the battlefield, and, and it is a, it's an adrenaline that you can only get in a combat situation or some of your law enforcement or SWAT guys would, would understand because, you know, they're in the heat of the battle and the adrenaline's pumping and everything. And it's, and it's a, it's a rush too. And then when you get back and, and you come into the mindset where everything slows down and, and you have to adjust to that and that's, and that's hard to do. Yeah, I, I can understand that because, you know, I was a New York City cop, so I understand the adrenaline rush, and then you become an adrenaline junkie, always looking for that next, you know, shot, if you want to call it that. Uh, so once you get to downtime, or if you're retired and you're back in civilian life, you don't have that anymore. You miss it, and you want it. It's, exactly. It is hard to describe to someone that hasn't been in that situation, and you have now exactly. people going on as many as eight deployments or more 
I have right. a friend of mine. Her son is deployed over in Afghanistan right now. And as long as I've known her, he's been deployed in somewhere in a battle, in a battlefield situation. And I've known her now 15 years or more. So you think right. over that whole long time, it takes a toll. And it does. And then eventually, you know, sometimes, you know, when they can't get that rush, they just shut shut themselves off. And, you know, they they would rather sit in a dark room and uh, and and not have contact with other people or they do the opposite. They have to deal with their demons and they start drinking and and and. You know, using other substance to to cope with what they've seen in that, and then affect. Of course, then that will affect their civilian job and their marriage and their relationship with their family and their kids. To it's a and then it's a cycle, and then then we have a veteran that ends up losing his job, losing his house, has no transportation, and is out on the street, and then that just that continues to cycle in a negative way. And then once they don't have an address, they can't get VA services because they have no means to uh, identify. And then sometimes they don't have means to drive there because they just lost their vehicle. So it's a, it's a big cycle. And, and I tell everybody, you know, to go to the VA to start getting the help. And so don't, don't let, that stigmatism of your weak influence what you uh your decision robert well robert with with ghost twenty two exactly what do you guys do to help uh anyone that is well, in that situation well just yesterday we delivered uh thanksgiving meals we uh we're a brand new nonprofit and so we we went out and we collect we raised money through our t-shirt sales and and donations and uh we fed veteran families just yesterday we went out and and fed 10 veteran families and uh but we 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 are like uh a clearinghouse so if somebody needs a ride we'll try to give them a ride or if somebody needs just to talk we'll we're there for that we're we're you know but another thing that we do which nobody else would do is if a veteran does commit suicide, we assist the family afterwards. So if the family doesn't have the money or the funeral home is charging an extreme amount of money, we'll come in and try to assist with that, or we have a crematorium that would do a cremation for them. If Robert, they, uh, wow. Yes, sir. Yeah, I served on the Nimitz, USS Nimitz, when I first went into service, and I ended my service on the USS Saratoga out of Mayport, oh, so Florida. Yep, I, I was right in Desert me. Storm. And um, back then, we didn't serve with women. Do you exactly. think that has an impact today on, you know, marriages and, 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 and these little romances at sea? And if it breaks off, you know, you're still seeing that person or with somebody else? Yes, it definitely that has a negative effect. I'm I'm sorry, it does have a negative effect and that's you know, and that old saying, Don't don't do your business in your foxhole you know, you try to instill that in your soldiers because you don't want the negativity coming coming to your soldiers later on. 
if if the wheels fall off. So yeah, well, you say you don't in your own house. You know? <laughs> yeah, exactly. You don't defecate you know, I mean, your own house. Yeah, I'm, I I tried to keep it PG. <laughs> <laughs> so, but yeah, I mean, I I I I tell my soldiers that all the time. Don't 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 get in that situation because you don't know what's going to happen, and then. And then they do it anyway, and then the uh, then you have an unfortunately fraternization runs wild where it's senior enlisted with junior enlisted, so it's it's a big distraction. And you know, I, I took an NCO to uh, J Smart, which is the psychological people to uh, to seek help during my last deployment so it's a uh it definitely affects morale it affects the soldier it affects the unit uh and there's there's no place for it i mean you're you're on the deployment to do a job not to uh not to put notches in your gun belt yeah the love boat Now, I'm just wondering how much of the social engineering our politicians have been doing have also affected uh, your members uh, in committing suicide? Because you now have where there may be transgender or you're not allowed to show a crucifix or something like that, or if you have a Bible with you, you get harassed or whatever. How much of the social engineering has affected the suicide rate? That. I, I know, uh, you know, from North Carolina, you know, a lot of people, you know, still are still a country you know, from the National Guard, you know. So, and then you got people that that do the uh, alternative lifestyles, and that's fine. I mean, some of them are great soldiers, but I, I think in the in the deep recesses, it could cause. Uh, you know, some distinction, but, you know, as long as the person does their job, that's, that's what I'm looking for. I'd rather have a soldier do their job and what they do on their off hours. But I'm sure, I mean, but I'm, I, that's something that, uh, that, you know, we haven't even looked at as far as the suicide rate. I'm also curious about, you know, how much of the political atmosphere outside on the civilian side where you have politicians like Kamala Harris uh, saying that soldiers just love to kill people. They're evil. Soldiers are bad people. Uh, you have, you're coming back from a deployment and you turn around and you hear someone go, well, I don't support the war, so therefore I don't support the troops. You hear a lot of that where people just don't understand what you guys are being yeah. put through. Or I uh... deployed to somewhere like Ramadi and find out that you, you've spilt the blood on the field only to find it's been taken back by the enemy. Exactly. I, uh, matter of fact, we, we did uh, two events back to back and I'm not going to say where they were at, but uh, I had uh, a man come straight to me, straight to my booth and say, I don't do anything to support veterans. And then he walked off. And then wow. another young female, probably a high school junior or senior, 
the she was with her grandmother, and she, the grandmother says, "What's this booth about?" And she said, "It's no big deal. It's just better than suicide. It doesn't matter." Whoa. So the the message the message through uh, the teaching administration about the importance of military and veterans is not being put out. And and so I mean you get I mean you get statements like that, you know that uh, that you know the the school administration and the circle of friends they hang out with or even you know their upbringing shows that uh what we do is not important to the to the general public i mean only one percent of the population goes in the military and we're losing uh at a minimum twenty two soldiers that are veterans a day that's uh that's a that's a eventually our numbers are gonna be really detrimental to uh to the to the calls. And you're seeing also a rise in active duty members also committing suicide. Exactly. And and, and so that's why it's actually when you can put the veterans, the uh reservists and the active duty it's it's close to thirty one a day. That's too high. And, and yes, One is too high. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's, that's what, you know, you know, that's why we try to strive to, you know, that's our goal is to lower that number. And, you know, we, we do, we try to do events all over, you know, we'll come and talk to somebody and, and it's not just, I'd talk to anybody. I mean, I've had people text me and say, Hey, can you talk to me? Is there help for me? Can I, you know, and and I've taken their text and and uh, and, and I talked to them and you know they're still here today. So it's uh, now. It's, how many states are you in? I are in North Carolina and and uh, I've been to uh, event worked an event in South Carolina as well. And we know we have contacts in Massachusetts. We have people that follow us in Arizona. Uh, Oregon, so we are reaching out slowly. We're we're trying to push our footprint out to uh, to get more followers, and and everything we do is donation and our and our clothing sales. So we are on a shoestring budget. So it's uh and it's pretty hard for three enlisted soldiers to carry this load and try to make a difference. But you know we do and. That's that's uh it's the burden that we chose to carry because it's an important message that yes, the VA is, is doing great things. I mean they've they've they're helping me, but there's a whole lot more to be done and uh that's why we we started Ghost Twenty Two. Well, I'm telling everyone, I'm going to be actually shooting a email to my members of I got because I run a tea party here in South Carolina and I'm I'm part of the part of the tri-command where I've got Paris Island Recruit Depot one end of a couple of miles one way, I've got the Marine Corps Air Station a couple of miles the other way, I've got the Naval Hospital a couple more miles in the different direction, so I'm right smack in the middle, a heavy uh, right. active military and veterans here, so I'm going to be shooting it out to my members and asking them to send the information out to everyone else that they know, just to pass it around on social network or anything, see if we can give you a little bit of a kickstart. If you guys are listening in, 
go to the website, ghost-22, not the word dash, put a hyphen in the middle, ghost22.com, put a dash in the middle there. Um, Also spread the phone number around to anyone that you may feel to be at risk, and the number is 1-800-273-8255. Again, 1-800-273-8255. And I'll let you know, Robert, most of the people that listen to the show listen to the podcast in archives, so we'll get a lot more hits than just people actively listening uh, listening right now because we're right. up live on Facebook. Uh, it'll be going up onto YouTube later on this afternoon. So we'll get more and more hits that way and get the word out because you were doing fantastic yes. work. And as been telling people, we're coming into the holiday season, and this will, will see a spike in suicides all across the spectrum. And for the men and women out there that have volunteered to serve and protect our nation, it's important work you're doing. Thank you. Well, oh, you know, we it's, it's a that. calling that, uh, that yeah, I gladly – go ahead. I was going to say, how are you doing? I'm doing great right now. Uh, I am uh, – Adjusting to coming back, I got back in June, and I uh, actually got my 5013C in July. So we we hit the ground. We we came up with the plan on the island and came back and hit the ground running. And uh, we haven't we really haven't stopped since I got back from deployment. Oh, that's amazing, absolutely amazing. And it, it, the numbers are phenomenal. I, I know you heard part of our previous guest where he's dealing with um, trying to get the word out about the rise of suicide with our kids as young as five years old. And there's yeah. something going on in today's society, and um, I don't know what it is. It's the weakening of our moral fiber, uh, the fact that, you know, we pamper today's society too much with safe zones and how dare you wave the American flag. I just got triggered. You know, we were formed as a nation of settlers that were tough. We wouldn't have survived if we weren't tough. And I think we're making ourselves a nation of wimps. And unfortunately it's, it's taking its toll. Yes, ma'am. I, uh, I agree somewhat with that statement that, uh, that uh, you uh, and you know you got to be, uh, and then whenever you do, you know, and and if you voice your opinion and and like for me, I have to be politically correct whenever I say something because it could offend somebody that, uh, and then it will affect my security clearance and my job as a whole. Then uh, I'm still, uh, in the, is, still in the guard. <laughs> that is a shame. Because uh, I was married to Marine, and he could not talk politics whatsoever. I would want to put a bumper sticker on the card. He goes, nope, you can't do that. You know, our yep. voices are being stifled, and uh, that's a shame. Because that's not what is. being an American is about. You know, it's free speech, freedom of speech, not freedom from speech. Yep. And I'm exactly. glad I've got this platform in which to help you get that message out. And you do great work, Robert, and I wish you the best. Like I said, this weekend I'll shoot out an email to my members and I'll post it up wherever I can and help get the word out for the work you're doing. Yes, ma'am. Well, thank you very much. And you're doing great. Thanks. Thank you. Take care. Thank you. And God bless. Yes, sir. Thank you.
Oh, people can find you also on Facebook under your name, Robert C. Hastings. Remind yes, people ma'am. there, too. Yeah. Thank yeah, you and, for your service. All right. Yes, sir. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Yes, sir. What a, what a wonderful thing that these, these men and women are doing that we had on today. Holy moly. What amazing yeah. stuff. And this is what America is about, helping each other, putting that hand out to help each other. You see a need, fill the need. Anyway, that's all we got for today, Curtis. Um, I don't have anything lined up at this moment for next week, but I'll let people know what I have when I have it. Um, But I guess that's all I got for now. Yeah, what is it, three weeks and it's Christmas, something like that? (laughs) Oh, really? Holy moly. I mean, I just turned the calendar to uh, November just a little while ago, (laughs) It seems like the last day in November. This year has gone by fast. Uh, Yeah, about now a little about four weeks before Christmas. Holy cow! The year is going so fast. Now I got to go pick out a Christmas tree. Ah, pull down the decorations. (laughs) (laughs) But meanwhile, I'm going to polish off the turkey. So I want to thank everyone for joining us. It was a blast. A lot of good information that we hope we got out to you. Uh, just remember, check out ghost-22.com, uh, returntoorder.org. Uh, check out paulawhite.org and the rise and fall of the tea party, uh, com. I mean, so much good stuff out there. But we will see you next week. Same bat time, same bat station. So I say good night, God bless, right. and have a healthy, happy, and safe Thanksgiving weekend. I'm praying for this land I love, America, America, the home of the free, but there are people making plans to change America, they've no respect for her, or what matters most to you, that's why I stand for the plant and I kneel at the cross. For the friends I have loved and lost. In that field, we God we trust. In the way the